You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. yippee mother Oz Networkers, as we are into the best Christmas movie ever made. That is right, it is a Christmas movie to wrap up our Christmas movies for 2018 and pretty much wrap up our movies for 2018 as well. It's been a big year and what a way to end a big year on a big movie that people debate whether or not it is a Christmas movie. Well, we're here to finally settle the score and tell you now that if you do not think this is a Christmas movie, you are wrong, you are an idiot, go listen to Spectre, etc. Because we're here to do Die Hard, (laughs) the ultimate Christmas movie that is a Christmas movie. And if I say Christmas movie one more time, it will officially become a Christmas movie. My name is Ben, and no fucking shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? And my name is Colin, and Sprecancy Talk. <laughs> oh, there's so many quotes in this movie. Uh, shall we just spend yes. a good, like, three hours just dropping? <laughs> <laughs> Come on a podcast, have a few laughs, get a bit of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> California. Um, California. <laughs> what a movie, Colin. How has it taken oh. us so long to, to get to Die oh. Hard? <laughs> um. Can I just first say that this is, in all honesty, like in the last few seconds when you said, how it'll take us this long to get to Die Hard. You know how people describe that feeling where they get like, you know, butterflies in their their stomach, like if they, like in love at first sight? Like when you said that, I genuinely felt joy, like (laughs) the butterflies in my heart. Like I'm so happy right now. I'm almost ready to break down in tears. Like this was my, one of my childhood favorite movies. This, as I... Tease it in the last episode. This was my first VHS. This is, uh, this is the ultimate for me. One of the, one of the reasons I wanted to do the Oz Network in the first place, just to get to Die Hard. It's taken us nearly 600 episodes, but finally we've made Colin cry. Um, we <laughs> thought it would happen during Titanic and every, uh, subsequent mention of Titanic, but no, it's Die Hard. Ladies and gentlemen, he's here. Now you know how I felt during Jurassic Park earlier this year. Um, how, mm-hmm. how are we going to feel during Star Wars next year, Colin? Jesus Christ. Um, oh, except for the last Jedi, oh, we'll be crying for different reasons I will than that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they had one job, Disney. They had one job, <laughs> and there's a kid with a broom. What does this mean? He's he's milking a whale. Why? <laughs> <laughs> she tried to save him. He was going to save them, but then she saved them. Why, Rose? Go away. Anyway, all right. Um, die hard. <laughs> this time last year we were actually talking about The Last Jedi, and this time next year we will be talking yeah. about Episode Nine. Interesting. But, yes, um, <laughs> this movie, I guess, uh, I mean, look, it's an iconic film. It basically created uh, a whole new way to do an action film. It, it launched Bruce Willis into stardom. It launched Alan Rickman into stardom. It, it launched so many different things into stardom. But I guess the reason we are here doing this, I mean, we could have done this in anniversary month a couple of months ago, but we deliberately saved this for Christmas month. And it's a it's a topic of debate. A lot of people always argue, this isn't a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. It isn't a Christmas movie. Um, we are in the smart category, which say this is a Christmas movie. <laughs> and I mean, look, it's been a while since I've probably seen Die Hard, if I'm completely honest. And I honestly forget how Christmassy this movie actually is. <laughs> like, 
Like, mm-hmm. seriously, people who argue this isn't a Christmas movie, again, I would say much more of a Christmas movie than White Christmas. And that is called White oh, Christmas. No. So, but this movie, I mean, you can watch this at Christmas, you can watch it at Easter, you can watch it on Canada Day, you can watch it on President's Day. I don't know, you probably can't watch it on, like, Columbus Day, because isn't that a thing anymore, I don't know. But... Look, you start off with your love of this movie because I, I feel you're going to be talking a little bit more about this than I am because you are crying right now from joy. Yeah. Um, I'm crying. I'm crying. <laughs> um, I, this goes back to when I was 10. And uh, not that this is a movie you should show a 10-year-old. <laughs> um, I don't know why my mama. I mean, it oh, was I a cool TV parents. edit. I was watching. <laughs> well, <laughs> not re- the, funny enough, um, just to start off, uh, I can remember maybe a few years earlier than that, like, I wasn't allowed to watch anything that was even PG. And I remember we watched Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> and I'm like, but this was rated PG. And I'm like, well, we'll let it slide. Uh, and then there was, like, a weekend or a week or something like that where uh, my mom was out of town, so my aunt was watching us. And she's like, all right, let's just put on Terminator here. <laughs> so by the time my mom came back, it's like, you let them watch this and this and this, and then she's like, all right, well, they're clearly not psychopaths, so I'll just <laughs> let it slide. Uh, but, yeah, I was 10. I mean, this is, we're talking like Die Hard 2 had already come and gone because I remember when we were sitting at home watching this movie you know, on TV, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I remembered it from um, the, the movie channels that we had here in Canada, like the Canadian version of HBO was called Super Channel. And the, they'd always have commercials on there for the newest movies, and this was around the time that Die Hard 2 – was um being shown on like the the premium movie channels for the first time so uh die hard 2 had probably already been out for a year or two and i just saw this and i honestly can't tell you much about my reaction because i was i'm too young to remember all i remember is the things that my mom would always remind me about it that that i i literally was like blown away in the way this movie was intended to be about the relatable action hero things that you wouldn't think a 10 year old would get and the fact that he would just use his surroundings instead of having all these gadgets and everything. And I was picking up on that. I'm like, and I, I would constantly apparently say that, like, he's a genius. Like, this guy's a genius because it was the first time I had ever even seen an action movie where the guy just used his common sense with things. Like, I'm going to use the strap of this machine gun to rappel down, you know, a, a, a chute. Or I'm going to use a computer monitor to blow up an elevator or whatever. I mean, the movie just blew me away. And I... uh it was a couple months later, strangely enough, at Christmas that, uh, you know, I got my first VHS. We had had like family VHSs that, you know, everybody shared, but, uh, we all got like a VHS that Christmas. And, um, I don't know what my brother and sister got, but mine was Die Hard. And this was when I was 10. So my very first own personal movie was Die Hard. And, uh, you know, by the time Die Hard of Avengers came out and then Live Free or Die Hard, I mean, I'm, I've just, I've always been obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with the Die Hard series. Not so much a good day to Die Hard, although my, <laughs> my excitement for that was like Star Wars level excitement. It was a huge letdown. And you left with uh, Star Wars other- level of excitement after The Last Jedi, so it kind of worked out well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, um, I mean, still to this day, like, it doesn't matter to me, like, people talk about, John McClane, like, oh, should Bruce Willis be playing him? He's in his 50s or 60s. Or like, he could be 98 years old playing John McClane, and I will pay for it every single time. Like, John McClane is the icon. Even more so of this being a Christmas movie, like, this is a John McClane movie. I I think my history with this stems from my dad just, you know, watching action films. And, I mean, to, you know, date me, I guess I was 
one when this movie came out. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, at some point during my childhood when Dad's introducing me to, you know, the Terminators and all these sort of movies, he's put on Die Hard. And I, I remember Dad having it on, like, VHS. And um, then we had, like, number two and number three sort of obviously just taped off TV, kind of on, you know, like a blank one sitting next to it. Uh, and for some reason, I always remember watching the second and third one, like, a lot, and not the first one as as much. And I liked the second and third ones um, a lot. <laughs> uh, but, mm-hmm. yeah, and then I remember, you know, it would just be a random Saturday night. Like, if we didn't go to the video store or get something out, Dad would just be like, hey, let's whack on a movie. Let's put on Die Hard or something like that. So, um, that's how my history came about with this film. That's about it. Uh, and, yeah, as I kind of said, I think, last week in the beginning of this too, like, it's been a while since I'd watched this so uh but yeah i mean mallory watched this with me last night she kind of was like yeah no that's that's a good movie so you know we're still together that's a good thing nice uh <laughs> so i mean th- there's always that danger isn't there after watching a movie like this at the end of it where it's kind of like uh no we're no longer together anymore because you don't like <laughs> die hard um but it's just it's interesting how kind of i guess with the internet and kind of all these sort of things that, you know, have grown over time, how much relevant this movie has still become in terms of, like, the Christmas theme and everything along those lines. And it it does seem to be a yearly debate now, doesn't it, about Die Hard being a Christmas movie, which it's funny because I did read a thing that Bruce Willis has come out and said this isn't a Christmas movie. Uh, but what do you know, Bruce Willis? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you're no longer married you to Demi Moore. You made a good Moore. day to Die Hard. Like, come on. <laughs> you're bald now. Uh, <laughs> but, but, like... In all fairness, I mean, here's the thing. I see this as a Christmas movie. For me, this is like my ultimate Christmas tradition. But it's not like it started that way. It was probably as I got older and was an older teenager that this became, oh, I love this as a Christmas movie. And I don't even know if it occurred to me when I got this for Christmas when I was 10, this being Christmassy. And, you know, I mentioned uh, at the end of the last episode that I, I remembered, like, uh, you know, in the early 2000s or whatever, I guess right a couple of years before this really started to catch on as like a Christmas tradition, uh, you know, there being like this poll on the Internet or this message board. And I commented, oh, Die Hard's my favorite Christmas movie when they were asking, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And there are a lot of people responded saying, I never really thought about that as a Christmas movie. But, yeah, I guess that would be one of the best. So even at that point, like we're talking, you know, uh, 15, 16 years ago or whatever, this wasn't looked at as a Christmas movie. And it's it's one of these things that's just sort of grown over time. But I can also see the other side of that because I didn't always see this Christmas movie. And even if you think about it, like the movie was released during the summer. It was never really intended to be a Christmas movie. It's just a movie that happened to take place at Christmas. So as much as I personally see it as a Christmas movie, I actually do – I can kind of understand it from other people's point of view when they'll say, well, it isn't. Well, they're wrong. So we know that. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, and of course, directed by John McTiernan, and we were only, what, a few weeks ago basically talking about uh, him, mm-hmm. weren't we, with Last Action Hero. But, I mean, he came into yeah. this, what, with Predator, which I guess was, was I mean, was Predator deemed a, a hit? I, or is that just one oh, of those, yeah. those cult ones that kind of over time has become a hit? No, Predator was a huge, I mean, especially, I guess, if you, I guess it made almost $100 million dollars when like 1986 1987 uh and at that time for an r-rated movie i mean that was considered huge so i I would probably compare it to something like you know uh today when you look at the success of say the john wick movies or uh or taken when that came out it was just this massive action movie where people like i did not see it coming that this movie was going to be that big well you go and look at what he started with his first film he ever directed was a movie called nomads starring who who's in that movie colin do you have you heard of that movie before 
I, I've never seen it. I think you'll want to when is you realise who Arnold the main star is. It? No, no, even better looking. Thought I forgot you, eh? Mr. Pierce Brosnan was the star of the 1986 ah! movie. No, Matt. <laughs> Colin's crying. We're again. covering it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he starts off with Pierce Brosnan in Nomads, goes on to Predator, Die Hard, then The Hunt for Red October. So pretty much everything John McTiernan touches at the beginning turns to gold. Um, but I know we talked a lot about during our 007 download, download now via iTunes, sort of, you know, living daylights, license to kill era where it was kind of this period of movie making where this action genre was just taking over. Um, and I mean, you know, you compare it what nowadays to what reboots and remakes and superhero movies. That's kind of what the trend is. Like this is really though, like the eighties. I mean, it was all about the action hero, wasn't it? And this is kind of sort of, I think you were mentioning before about this is kind of the first everyman action hero. You know, I know on the uh, honest trailer, they kind of go on about how the eighties were filled with roided up action heroes of like, you know, Arnie and, and Sylvester Stallone and all that sort of stuff. But here we have good old Bruce Willis, who at the time, he was only known for moonlighting, wasn't he? He hadn't really done much outside of moonlighting, yeah. right? I mean, this was his, like, feature film debut. I, I guess a good comparison would be, because moonlighting was a huge show. Um, I, I never have seen it myself, but I remember my mom talking about, you know, liking moonlighting and everything and how big it was. And... Uh, him signing on to Die Hard, it wasn't like it was like, well, this is just some TV guy. Nobody's going to take it seriously. I guess it was considered as big as, say, when George Clooney got into like his first movie. It was from I remember from Dusk Till Dawn after mm-hmm. he really made it big on ER, and it was just a big deal. Well, the first movie from this huge TV star, but yeah, like he wasn't a movie star at this point. This is the beginning of Bruce Willis, the movie star. This would be like if Matthew Perry had have become James Bond. You know, we would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe not. Let's qu- not even think about that. Quite the same. But, uh, you know, like for someone like me, all I ever knew of Bruce Willis is that he is an action star. You know, I think kind of we talked a bit mm-hmm. about that, like with, um, uh, we were talking about that with John Travolta, weren't we, a little bit? Kind of, you know, him and mm-hmm. sort of people like that who weren't seen in a certain light. But, you know, someone of my age, that's, that's all he is. You know, grew up watching things like The Fifth Element, Armageddon, you know, things like that. You know, this is just who Bruce Willis was to me. Um, so I mean, so many elements is, and, and the one too that also his very first movie role, Alan Rickman, his very first movie yeah. role as well, which is crazy because I mean, is, is he the greatest movie villain of all time? He's in, gotta be in like the top five. Like you, oh. you talk about Darth Vader and all these sort of people, but I mean, Hans Gruber's up there, isn't he? Yeah, hands down. Um, I remember the, the AFI, they used to do this thing every year. It started with like the AFI top 100 movies of all time. And then they would do like the AFI top 100 comedies. And one year they had a TV special, which was the, the AFI actually ranked the top heroes and villains in movie history. And Hans Gruber made their top 50 list of the greatest movie villains of all time. Mm. Well, I mean, Alan Rickman is just, you know, rip Alan Rickman. We need to do an Alan Rickman month because no jokes aside, the uh, guy's incredible. We may have one. Not a month, but we have at least one of his movies coming next year. Oh, which are you going to cry even more than Die Hard? Like I don't know. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, and one thing I actually didn't realize is that this is based on a book because you know I don't read books. Um, but based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe, um, which uh, I guess I mean more famous after Die Hard because 
Was this kind of a popular book? Just no. reading here, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this was known as a popular book. Oh, you don't book. know the story? No, I don't. Okay, well... This is why I don't know don't anything, know the story. Colin. Please, tell us the story. <laughs> I've never read the book, but um, this is what's what's interesting, is, is that the, the movie rights to this go back to the 60s, because the book Nothing Lasts Forever was a sequel to a book called The Detective from the 60s that had already been adapted into a movie starring Frank Sinatra as the John McClane character. It had, he had a different name in The Detective, but it was the same character. And The Detective ended up being one of the most successful movies Frank Sinatra ever made. He had it in his contract that if they ever made a sequel, he would get the first right of refusal. Now, flash forward almost 15 years later, and Roderick Thorpe sees, or maybe 10 years later, and he sees this movie, The Towering Inferno, which was a disaster movie about a building burning down. And he starts having this dream that night about a guy being chased through a building by guys with guns. And he's like, I'm going to take that dream and turn it into the sequel to The Detective. So he writes the book, Nothing Lasts Forever, as a sequel to the book that had already been adapted by Frank Sinatra. So when they spend a couple of years trying to make Die Hard... And eventually they know we want to change this. We don't want to make it a sequel to Detective. They still had to offer it to Frank Sinatra to get the first right of refusal. Wow. Now, they knew there's no way Frank Sinatra is going to take this at the age of, you know, 60 or whatever. But they went to him anyways and said, listen, it, we're, we're changing it. We're making this. But it is a sequel to Detective. You can do this if you want. He goes, you know what? I'll politely pass. And they're like, good. Let's go get Bruce Willis or somebody else. <laughs> so he's, I, I'd never heard of that before. I mean, what that would have been interesting Sinatra doing it, but um, is it is it ever documented where other people offered this role besides Bruce Willis? I, there's basically every name in the book. I mean, I think the very first person, the, the first choice they had was Nick Nolte, huh. and he turned it down. And then uh, basically go through everybody in the uh, the 80s, every major male movie star of the 80s, whether it be you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, John Travolta was one of the ones that they they wanted, but uh, apparently. The studio didn't want to go for that because Travolta's career was kind of, you know, uh, on, on a downturn at that point. Uh, and somehow it just ended up as Bruce Willis. But this was like, I don't know if um, this was such a big deal where they're like, well, this is going to be the biggest action movie of the decade or whatever. But they had high hopes for it enough that they're like, well, let's try to get the biggest stars out there. I, I don't know if I could see any of those guys playing this character. I think so much of John McClane is Bruce Willis. But I certainly would have had an easier time believing somebody like Nick Nolte, maybe, or even John Travolta potentially doing this <laughs> than I would with, like, I don't think you could have pulled off, as much as Schwarzenegger tries to be the everyman as we bring up, you know, as a mattress salesman or uh, <laughs> construction worker or whatever else it is, there's no way this movie works unless you have an average guy in the role. Which Bruce Willis does bring that, doesn't he? Like, he's kind of, and it's also, it's, I think, a large portion of this film, what sells it with Bruce Willis is that ability to kind of have those sarcastic conversations with himself. And yeah, it says Arnold Schwarzenegger really do that. Come to the coast, get a few standards. <laughs> you know, have a few laughs. <laughs> like, it just doesn't work the same. Um, and yeah, I don't know who else kind of would have been able to do that. Uh, before we do get into this, too, the, the one thing that I've always wondered, and again, you're the, the one here who seems to know it all, and I'm just, hey, I, I watched Die Hard. Um, the name Die Hard. It's kind of one of these ones, if you think about it, it's like, well, if you're dying, you're not exactly going to die easy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a cool name. I don't want to rip shit into the name. But, like, has it ever been it's explained? Like, why is it called Die Hard? Die Mildly, Softly, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, 
if anything, it's kind of a play, I guess, play on hard to kill, which I think there was a Steven Seagal movie called Hard to Kill. Uh, but like, I, it just sounds great. I know there's a brand of batteries called Die Hard, or maybe it's their tagline that's Die Hard. <laughs> um, but uh, that's the only other relation I've ever seen to this. I don't know where the title came from, to be honest. Um, but they've always kind of went for that really ridiculously over-the-top action title, whether it be Die Hard. I mean, there's kind of the misconception people believe that Die Hard 2 was called Die Harder, when actually that was just a promotional subtitle. Like, the official title of the movie, even on screen, is just Die Hard 2. But in promoting the movie, they're like, let's call it Die Hard 2 Die Harder. And it's like, what are we going to be next? How about Die Hard with a Vengeance? (laughs) (laughs) Like, how many more things? Die (laughs) Harder-er. Live free and Um, die harder Yeah. (laughs) A good day. Like, I love the title, A Good Day to Die Hard, as much as I don't love that movie. And that's... The other appeal is that even though these movies are – I'm not going to say they're serious. They're very funny, but they're very reality-based in the action and everything. Uh, and just having this really ridiculous title that should belong in one of these cartoony action movies starring Schwarzenegger or Stallone or Seagal or Van Damme, it just makes Die Hard better because it, you realize they're not taking themselves so seriously even though it is such a reality-based character and a reality-based movie. See, uh, the fourth one in Australia actually was not called Live Free or Die Hard. It was actually literally called Die Hard 4.0. So uh, I, yeah. I don't know and that, why in Australia that they was thought everywhere. we were dumb to like call it not Live Free or Die <laughs> no, Hard. No. <laughs> Believe it or not, that was the title pretty much everywhere in the world but North America. Huh. I think it was a thing of, in North America, they're like, why, or 4.0, people aren't going to understand that. Because <laughs> um, even Bruce Willis, I remember when they were promoting Live Free or Die Hard, they addressed that. And even Bruce Willis will say, to me, the movie is not Live Free or Die Hard. To me, this movie is Die Hard 4.0. So in making the movie, they all saw it as Die Hard 4.0 and released it everywhere in the world as 4.0. And here in North America, we're dumb. Although, personally, I prefer Live Free or Die Hard. I think that's a great title. Yeah, I agree. I kind of think that sounds a lot better. But um, it's kind of like random ones. Like, what, they they didn't think American audiences would know what a philosopher was, so they called Harry Potter and the first one the Sorcerer's Stone or whatever it was. Yeah. And, um, and, and here in Canada, we can claim, like, we're not that dumb because we went along with the Live Free or Die Hard. But I think that's one of the few times where in Canada they said, we don't care if you have to change this for North American Canadian prints. We're not calling it the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> We're going to call it the Philosopher's here. So America is literally the only country that didn't understand what a philosopher was. And the one that I never understand is the fact that in Australia, I don't know if it's just Australia or other parts of the world, but the first Mighty Ducks movie is called Champions in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't understand why. Like, there's never been something. I have no idea. Uh, and th- I will say, too, that this is... Go ahead. D2 champions? Uh, no, D3 they, just, champ- they literally still call the second one D2 Mighty Ducks and then D3 Mighty Ducks. <laughs> like, it's it's weird. Like, you have champions, D2 Mighty Ducks, and <laughs> D3 Mighty Ducks. Um, This is one of the uh, very rare occasions where we are not obviously making this diehard month. We would love to, but, um, you know, this is kind of right. wrapping up. So, like, this is one of these ones where we're one day we will have to come back and revisit all the other ones for some, you know, when they ultimately make a six one or something like that. So, um, sadly for all the diehard fans out there, we're not following this up with the other ones after this, but we'll talk a little bit more at the end of the episode. We really should get into this. Uh, <laughs> we have yes. taken like 25 minutes and we haven't even talked about the film yet. Um, 
So, uh, we've got a plane, it's landing, uh, we see Bruce Willis for the first time, he's got hair, good for him, it was the 80s, um, and he apparently doesn't like it. It was the 80s, <laughs> that was the trend. Come the 90s, everybody wanted the receding hairline look. <laughs> he's gripping the, uh, the seat, he's scared, and we meet this guy who tells him to, you know, get back home and grip the carpet with his feet. Um, make fists with your toes. Yes. Uh, and then we, okay, all jokes aside, we know it's the 80s because here he is on a plane with a gun and he's in the airport five minutes later lighting up a smoke. Oh, the good old days when you could carry weapons and smoke. Oh my goodness. Um, he has a giant bear. He has a little bit of a flirt with the, uh, the flight attendant. Why not? Um, and we, for the first time, get to see the Christmas party at the Nakatomi... Is it the Nakatomi building, or, like, what? what is it called? Plaza. Plaza, thank you. I knew there was another name to it. Um, we meet this creepy guy with a beard, the douche nozzle of the movie, um, who wants... Ellis, yes! <laughs> oh, wait, we like him? <laughs> yes! <laughs> um... Spreckets talk. His, his literal description on Wikipedia is... A sleazy Nakatomi executive. <laughs> Is he just meant to signify the 80s? Like, you know, sleazy, oh, yeah. pushing forward with everything, sniffing cocaine. Snorting. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's trying to, uh, I guess, ask out Holly. We meet Holly, uh, ask him out, ask her out for dinner, uh, but it's Christmas. Um, and then Holly rings up, uh, the kids. I always forget that they have kids. Um, because isn't the fourth and the fifth one, or is it the fifth one about their kids or something? Like, I'm, again, not seen it, but isn't that what it's about? No. Lucy and whatever the son's name is. Um, so we get him, Holly ringing up about the kids, checking on them. We have meet Paulina. Who's their housemate? For some reason, Mallory turned to me and, like, when this scene was on, I was like, that's racist. And I'm like, what? What's racist? And, like, she's Mexican. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, it's racist. And I'm like, why? Because she's working? <laughs> and <laughs> Mexicans shouldn't work? Like, she never actually explained to me. <laughs> she never actually explained to me why she thought it was racist. So. I don't know. Like the stereotype of a housekeeper? Maybe. That's racist? Again, it was the 80s. That wasn't a thing like then. Like, people got away with shit well, in the 80s. <laughs> I'll, I'll address that in a second. Just continue on. Um, for some, Why does she put the photo down? Like, because she's here basically saying, like, oh, you know, John might show up and I'll make the spare bedroom up in case. And then she hides the photo. And then I guess we find yeah. out here that um, she's... Oh, we don't quite find out she's using Gennaro yet, do we? That's when he comes to the... Uh, building. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can answer that for me in a sec. Puts the photo down. Um, John McLean, meanwhile, is going through the airport. We meet our limo driver for the, uh, the movie Argyle. Argyle. I love Argyle. He's great. Um, the limo's got everything. It's very 80s. It's got a VHS player in the 80s. Whoa. Limo with a VHS. <laughs> CB radio. I know. Wow. <laughs> it's almost like, um, you know, a Unix system or interactive CD ROM. <laughs> We'll see one of those in a second. <laughs> um, and we're learning a little bit about him, that he's uh, from New York. Holly's come out to L.A. for a job and that um, 
John McClane couldn't uh, come out because he's got a hand, you know, a pile of uh, perps. He's got to basically uh, backlog up there. I do love again good old eighties once again when Argyle's basically like, "Why you leave her? You know, she beat you up or something like that." Like, ah, oh, <laughs> casual jokes about domestic violence. Those domestic were the days. Violence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I do like it how because he's sitting in the front of the limo because this is what Argyle's first day as a limo driver. His first time ever in a limo. Uh, we've got this giant bear sitting in the back seat. And then Argyle's just like, I'm going to put on some tunes. And it's like, oh, shouldn't we put on Christmas music? This is Christmas music. <laughs> it's like... A Run DMC. <laughs> rapping about Christmas. Um, so they pull up to the plaza and um, he says, look, I'm going to go upstairs and see. Uh, asks him to wait. Well, Argyle basically says, I'll wait in the garage. And if she kicks you out, you come back, I'll get you a hotel. If not, I'll, you know, just here's my number and give me a a call, um, and I might just kind of leave this up here. So John McClane goes inside, types on an interactive CD-ROM! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> types in McClane, finds out that she's using her uh, maiden name, Holly Gennaro. See, it's Jurassic Park connection, Gennaro. I think this yeah. is Gennaro. I think this was too. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, he goes upstairs into the party. He tries some champagne, but basically, like, spits it back out. Um, a random guy gives him a kiss. And is this, like, the second time when he's, like, California? Yeah. Um, California. He goes into Holly's office. We meet Ellis again, who's sniffing cocaine. Um, because <laughs> why not? Um, <laughs> they, is Bruce Willis, like, Bruce Willis meets, uh, the, the Mr. Takagi and is essentially like, oh, yeah. I didn't know they celebrated Christmas in Japan. Uh, <laughs> now that's racist. I was gonna say, is that slightly racist? It's kind of like just implying that, oh, you're Japanese, you don't celebrate Christmas. Um, Holly comes in and we find out she's been given a Rolex. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, I'm just, I'm lumping a lot of stuff in here because I know you'll have a lot more to say than I will. So I'm just kind of, I might just lump it in here into the conversation in the bathroom, essentially, um, when they sort of, he's questioning her about using her last name um, and everything. We see a couple of shots of a courier truck driving to the plaza. We've got a couple who want to fuck in the bathroom, but they get kicked out. Um, and John McLean is talking about the marriage with Holly and knowing what type of marriage it is. And then Holly gets called out to go give a speech. So how about that? I've, uh, covered a fair bit there in the opening bit, but I mean, this, in all fairness, like it's kind of just all these opening stuff with the party. We're not watching Die Hard to see a marriage debate and guys sitting coke. <laughs> We're watching this to see Hans Gruber shoot some people. Come on. Yes. <laughs> and people make fists with their toes. Yes. That's what we want to talk about. The foot fetish film, this one. um okay first of all um i find it funny uh well i I like the intro with him and the the fist with your toes thing just that it's like this cold open before you even get the title and it's just a complete throwaway scene um but it perfectly sets up like the everyman action hero that uh we're gonna see a lot more of this later on that the opening of this movie as tough as bruce willis is and as much as he even presents himself as this confident, you know, uh, tough, uh, capable guy, the very first introduction to his scene is him gripping the arms of a chair, afraid at a landing of an airplane. Mm-hmm. And it, it's 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 the perfect way to introduce this character and just the type of action here you're going to have later on. There's more brilliant moments after that later on. Uh, at the the party, Holly's the only one that's working in this entire party. <laughs> 
everybody else is like sniffing coke and uh you know trying to screw in people's private bathrooms um but holly's like carrying all these files everywhere and meanwhile they they even say this party's partly to celebrate the work that she just did in this major deal we had uh, i love holly's pregnant assistant where uh it's like you think the baby could take a little uh a bit of champagne or whatever <laughs> Like, this is so 80s. They're encouraging this nine-month pregnant woman to go get loaded on Christmas Eve. I mean, I'm sure there's a deleted scene where she's snorting coke with Ellis in the other room. <laughs> you think a little bit of coke's okay for the baby? Oh, it's the 80s. Good old days. God damn. Don't we miss them? Oh. <laughs> uh, and I love all the different California, like... um I think another thing that just sets John McClane as a character apart is... That, he is a fish out of water, but he's also – he's older than he is. My impression is John McClane's supposed to be maybe a guy in his early 30s, let's say, because he says he's been a cop for, what, like 11 years? Mm. So let's say he's in his early to mid-30s, um, and we kind of always see Bruce Willis maybe as being older than that because he is not your typical action hero. He he gets hurt in these battles. He's always grunting, and he's he's not in shape. I mean he can do incredible things. But the John McClane character was never meant to be a guy who's in great shape. He's a guy who, you know, he gets winded, uh, he, uh, you know, he groans and he he whines. And he's constantly complaining. He's me. By the time we get to, he's you. <laughs> By the time we get to Tired of the Vengeance, all he's doing the whole time is saying how bad his headache and his hangover is, and he just wants an aspirin for the whole movie. I mean, <laughs> this is not your real tough guy action hero, uh, and. Even just the California thing, like, it makes him seem like maybe a bit more of an older man because anytime he sees anything that's slightly out of his ordinary, like the couple at the airport that just straddle each other, he's like, California, like almost with disdain. <laughs> and then the guy, the drunk guy who comes up and kisses on the cheek, California. <laughs> I, I just get this impression like he's this – I don't know, like 80 year old man, a 35 year old's body. And uh, that makes the character so endearing. If you really think about it, I don't, um, I don't get the whole line that the guy has, uh, the security guy at the desk when, um, he has the, the, the computer thing and he goes, Oh, just type the name in there. And then he's like, John's like cute toy. And he goes, uh, it, it'll help you take a leak or something like that. Uh, what's the line? Oh, like, oh, it'll even, uh, help, you, it'll even help you take a whiz or something like that. zipper need to take a leak. Yeah. Like, I don't get that. Is this just a line he uses on everybody? Like, there's a couple of one-liners in this movie where even now, like, decades after seeing this movie for the first time, I still scratch my head. I'm like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> there's going to be... Another great one coming up. They, they just uh, wrote so scene. many in there. They're like, come on, I'm going to at least get a couple of sick one-liners out of this movie. Like, <laughs> Maybe you only get this if you're from California. You know, that's the only <laughs> West Coast references about taking a leap you can find your zipper. Um, one part that's always bothered me <laughs> is um, when he tells him, oh, just punch her name in there. And then he's like, uh, you know, oh, it's wherever. He goes, oh, they're the only ones left in the building. Like, wouldn't it just be your assumption if somebody's coming here? You know, the only people left in the building are on the 30th floor. Are you looking for somebody on the 30th floor? Because they're the only ones left in the building. He made him go through this hassle he's a of typing in this computer thing. <laughs> no, they're the only ones left in the building. Start with that, buddy. <laughs> go through this. Like, he's got to take a leak. Like, this thing... <laughs> It's not that helpful. It's interactive CD-ROMs, very early age. <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> gets up to the party. How does he immediately know to go talk to Takagi? Like, I would assume maybe he's seen his picture somewhere before, but he, it's not like he goes up and he has this recognition. He's just walking through the room, and he walks up to Tagi, Takagi in the middle of a conversation. Goes, "Hi, I'm looking for Holly." He's like, "Oh, you must be Mister McLean." Which also presents a problem later on when Holly explains the reason she took her maiden name and and calls herself Miss instead of Mrs. Mm. is because a Japanese company, a married woman, but the president of the company here or whatever is like, oh, you're Holly's husband with the different last name. Like, how is this a big deal if Takagi already knows who he is and has sent the car from the airport and is obviously aware of their situation? Um, uh... Okay, so th- this is line. I thought it was coming for the next scene, but you already mentioned it with the, the semi-racist comment. <laughs> I didn't know they celebrated, which you could also just be like, that's kind of an old man thing to say, which is fine. But it's Takagi's response to this, where he goes, Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you with the tape decks. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, what does it mean? And then I love that Ellis to me like, <laughs> Do you have a Muslim executive at like a thing in 2018 going like, well, 9-11 didn't work out, then we got to with an MP3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of get like the reference, maybe the tape decks, like Japanese technology that we're taking over. But what does that have to do with John saying, I didn't know they celebrated Christmas in Japan. For Harvard didn't work out, we got you with the tape decks. <laughs> it's just- it's so bizarre. I don't get it. Somebody out there, please explain that line to me. Um, and I guess the only other thing that, that really doesn't make sense for me here, um, I actually love the relationship between John and Holly and how much is not said. Like, they explain later on where he's talking to Al about how they separated a couple months ago because she got this job or whatever, and he told a little bit to Argyle earlier on. Uh, but even just the thing with where is he staying – because I'm kind of getting, without this even being said in the movie, it's so understated that this is a very last-minute thing. Holly doesn't know, is he actually coming? He kind of has that line about, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Like, this was clearly a last-minute trip, because Argyle asks him, where are you going to stay? He goes, I'll figure something out. And then when he goes and he talks to Holly, he's like, oh yeah, old Captain whatever, you know, he lives in Ramona, which she's like, no, Pomona, like <laughs> California. <laughs> all these West Coasters laughing at it. <laughs> um, but like, he literally has no clue what he's doing. He's telling Argyle, I'll maybe stay at a hotel. He's telling Holly, I'll stay at the captain's house. She's telling the, the housekeeper, which is a racist thing, obviously. <laughs> Maybe make a spare room. Like it's just such a last minute thing, and yet when they see each other, like they really kind of embrace. Not like fully embrace. Not like the couple trying to get it on in the Ellis's bathroom, but um, like this is just a couple who really miss each other. But then they immediately just break into a fight. You you honestly get the impression that they've barely talked in the last five months. Um, now just to close off, now the the racist housekeeper thing. I I won't say I see it from Mallory's point of view. But I probably would have thought that at one point, too, like, it's just the stereotype. You have the immigrant, you know, Hispanic housekeeper, nanny, whatever. But and I'm sure there's going to be people who are going to be like, well, you're playing up to a stereotype. But I've taken several trips down to the state in different places in the States. And one of the things I always point out to Jamie is when you're in a hotel, look at the housekeeping staff. No joke. 
90% of them will be Hispanic. Mm. And that's not me making a racist assumption. This is me saying an observation as somebody who doesn't live in America. You don't see that in Canada because we have different demographics you know, and uh, different ethnicities living here. But that's pretty accurate to what I've seen in 2018. That it's just it, – that's – it's one of those things where you know, here in Canada, you, you could say it's racist or whatever, but – you will more often than not find a lot of people who come from India who either drive a cab or own a grocery store. You find the same thing with people who come here from Korea or China as well, is that they'll open grocery stores. It's just there's certain demographics where, you know, it could be said it's a stereotype, or you could say there is like a massive amount of that uh, demographic of that group that really does do this. So, Mallory, it's not racist. It's real. Um and now people are going to call me racist, well, but it's real. It's good to be the one on this podcast and not being referred to as a racist for once. It's um, yeah. it's, it's a nice it's a feeling. It's a racist now, not the Australian. Yeah, and I'm not going to comment for once because uh, this is coming from a person who I've been in a car with and just saw non-white people walking in front of us, and then Colin turns to me and says, "Don't say anything racist, Ben." Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh God! Um, I do we we like Holly though, don't we? Holly's great. Oh yeah. Which, Holly's one of the best, like, wife characters in any cop movie. Because the thing with Holly is that I always kind of seem to picture her as, like, a damsel in distress, but she's not really, is she? Because she kind of holds her own through this whole movie, and it's only right in the final moments where it's even discovered that she is connected to John. Um, and even then, kind of, like, that sort of final scene. So, um, and from memory, so, like, in the second one, she's got a fairly significant role. Isn't she on the planes in the second one? on the plane, yeah. yeah. With the, the reporter that's, from that's this right. movie. Yeah, because all reporters are evil pricks. Don't get me started on that yeah. when we get to it. Um, and They're also racist. Yes, exactly. We deserve to get punched in the head. Um, and the third one, <laughs> like, she's on the phone or something, isn't she? Because this is the thing I like yeah, about... He... Go ahead. I was just going to say, she's referenced a lot in it that they've separated again. And he m- tries to make a phone call to reconcile with her. And you kind of hear, like, her voice on the other end briefly, but, like, she doesn't appear in the movie, yeah. Well, that's... I I do like the fact that, sort of, in these movies, how there's no real love story out of it, if you know what I mean. Like, it's kind of... They're they're separated, and it's sort of like it's not... I mean, it's a sort of... It's a happy ending, but it's kind of... You know, each movie seems to be there's something driving them apart. So... Yeah. I kind of like that, that they, they keep that going but um so bonnie is a bed bedia bedlia bedelia bedelia um who apparently seven years older than bruce willis she looks good in this movie for somebody who apparently is nearly a decade older than bruce willis um how old was she when she made this movie she was 41 40 when she made this movie um and bruce willis would have been 33 so she looks good so and I don't know if you've seen her or anything else. The only other thing I really know her from was we're talking 20 years after Die Hard. They made a TV show called Parenthood, which was mm. kind of loosely based on the Ron Howard movie with Steve Martin and Rick Moranis and Keanu Reeves. And she played the grandma character on that. And I remember even watching that, like she's married to Craig T. Nelson in that show and thinking like 20 years after Die Hard, I'm like, she doesn't look old enough to be the grandma of you know some of these were like grown adults that she was a grandmother of so even like in in this when she was like in her 60s i was assuming she probably looked in her 40s well she was in designated survivor 
for like not many episodes, oh, she- only a couple. But like, honestly, I didn't recognize her until I just looked at a thing then. And then when I saw the character, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I remember who she is now. So, um, yeah, that's probably looking at this, the only thing I would have ever seen her in outside of Die Hard. So, but yeah, she's great. She's, we like her. Um, and good on you, Bonnie, for being. She's 70 years old. Yeah. Good for like her. Like today. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Willis is 63. So. Wow. Well, he, I mean, he looks every bit of it. <laughs> the first thing Mallory said when, as soon as he came on screen, was like, wow, he looks young. Like, let's be honest here. Yeah. Like, you know, we can come on here and talk about people's appearances, but Jesus Christ, Bruce Willis hasn't aged well. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, look what he's gone through. True, true. <laughs> terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. That's why Arnold Schwarzenegger looks so bad. How come is it Sylvester Stallone is sort of the only one who sort of aged gracefully, would you say? He's <laughs> uh, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Diet, let's be honest, I don't know. he doesn't look that good. <laughs> you know what? It's it's all the raw eggs Schwarzenegger's, uh, uh, Stallone's drank over the years is Rocky. <laughs> raw eggs is the secret. <laughs> yes. Getting nominated for Oscars. <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Uh, all right, so... Um, uh, and also, the, the, we get our first appearance of the white uh, singlet top. I'm not going to call it a wife beater. We're yeah. 2018. That's very inappropriate. <laughs> um, but uh, which is now apparently in the Smithsonian Museum. Did you know that? It's uh, I did know that. That iconic. That that is where it is now. Um, we've got uh, our the truck going into the under part of the the plaza, and we have uh, what's the hacker's name? The Theo. Theo. Uh, I like him. Uh, I kind of like this conversation he has as they're walking through uh, the building talking about, like, basketball, and they just shoot this guy. He's like, two points! (laughs) (laughs) Just the way he does that. And they kind of go through this uh, whole sequence now where they're, I guess, locking down all the doors and hacking the elevators so that they can't uh, be moved up and down. We see Gruber for the first time, Alan Rickman, who Mallory actually turned to me and said, he's actually not bad looking in this movie. Because <laughs> like, I had to explain, like, that's Snape from Harry Potter, right? And she's like, oh, oh, he's actually not that bad looking. Do you know, do you know what's so weird? Uh, just not to interrupt, but I, I'll forget this if I don't mention it. Go for it. Jamie made sure that I mentioned this. I had no idea how much women love Alan Rickman. <laughs> wow. Like, for years. Wow. Like, I remember when Sense and Sensibility came out and kind of just having an idea of what Jane Austen was supposed to be. Like, it's it's sort of, I'm not going to say porn for women, but this is, uh, Jane Austen is really like, porn this is what women's, it, it kind of is. It's, it's it's Victorian porn. You know, it's, this is the ideal situation or the, the, the ideal men that uh, women want in, in that era or whatever. And I remember like Hugh Grant was in that movie and Hugh Grant was very popular at the time. And then Alan Rickman was in it. And I remember thinking like, well, which sister drew the short straw where they ended up with Alan Rickman, you know, Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman only to realize that as Jamie tells me, and many other women have said, Alan Rickman is the guy that most women really want. And that not just in like Die Hard, but like Sense and Sensibility and even up when he was in his sixties, like Alan Rickman was like a huge sex symbol. And I it's not something I really get, yeah. but like it, it just it shocked me when I found out that like Alan Rickman, like women adore Alan Rickman. Well see, I had a friend who she was like really into Harry Potter and loved the novels. And she had a huge like crush on Snape. Um and I was like, Really? Like you see the movies, right? And she's like, no, 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 not movie Snape, like book Snape. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, uh, uh, 
a word on a page looks really yummy. Mm. Yeah, mm, just thinking of him. Uh, it's it's kind of like, <laughs> like if I read the Bible, right? Like Jesus is the same guy. Like in, I mean, he's been betrayed by plenty of people in movies. But like, you know how there's like an image of Jesus. Like that's what he looks like. Mm-mm. Like I don't know where I'm going with this, but like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. It's like you know what? Uh, oh, I really have a thing for Jesus. You mean Christian Bale Jesus, Jim Caviezel Jesus, Max von Sydow Jesus? No. Bible Jesus. The E, the S, the U, and then the other S. Just to be bad. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, Alan Rickman, you know, like clearly in love, actually, his uh, assistant or whoever yeah. she was wanted him, you know, couldn't keep Emma Thompson, but who can? Um, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I like Emma Thompson. I have nothing against Emma Thompson. Um, moving on. Uh, Schwarzenegger and Alan. <laughs> got the best of the world. <laughs> she, and Rowan Atkinson. In Johnny, she gets around Emma Thompson. Um, <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black 3. Uh, <laughs> last week, last week is let's throw Larry the Cable Guy into the bus. Now it's Emma Thompson gets around. <laughs> I meant in Ubers. She likes to travel a lot. Colin Hilding. Goodness me. <laughs> Disgust me with your implications. Um, so, uh, well, I like how we cut here and we see John McClane doing his toe thing on the carpet. Yeah. Um, legitimately, like, the Honest Trailer sells it so well when they say this is basically a foot fetish film. <laughs> There's so much foot stuff in this movie. Um, he looks in his wallet as his kids. Um, and then he rings up Argyle on the phone. He's chilling in the limo with the bear. Now, this song that's playing in the background, it's Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. Great song. Uh, they used it in one of the Grand Theft Auto 5 trailers, and I was obsessed with it when it came out. But every time they cut to him in this limo, he's playing the same song. Like, Argyle <laughs> really loves Stevie Wonder in 1988. I mean, who didn't? Uh, I was one, and I was a baby, and I was all I was doing was listening to Stevie Wonder. Uh, <laughs> but I do like him just chilling there with the bear. Um, we get the phone, though, gets cut off because they're chopping off the cables, which I don't understand, because they're, like, trying to really carefully cut the cables, and then all of a sudden the guy comes in with the chainsaw and just, like, <laughs> chops them all out. Like, I don't understand what's happening there. Uh, and then everyone comes out of the uh, office and starts shooting. Now... Is it ever implied that anyone gets killed in this? Because I swear only, like, two hostages die, and that's Takagi and Ellis. But, like, do any... Like, they're just shooting at the ceiling here, right? Like, they're not actually killing anyone here. Yeah, exactly. It's just, like, warning shots. Right. Again, the 80s. What a time when terrorism, all it was, was a couple of Germans with machine (laughs) guns. Oh, you know, like, goodness me. All it involved were terrorists going into skyscrapers. They didn't need planes back then. They just needed some codes, locking some doors. Oh, it was an innocent time. Um, <laughs> but all the, the, these guys getting all the hostages. We see some boobs in the movie because that guy was trying to have sex with the woman. Like, I always remember they that finally scene. found a room. <laughs> I always remember. Well, I'm scene. sure you always remember that scene. <laughs> Just like I'm sure that Jamie's like, oh, Bruce Willis is shirtless in this movie. Like, hey, those <laughs> random blonde woman. Uh, um, but uh, so uh, John McClane hears all this and kind of uh, hides and he runs upstairs and gets away with it. But like going back to your point when you say like John McClane, how does he know automatically that that's Mr. Takagi? I mean, to kind of go on that, this is where Hans Gruber is essentially walking around to all the Japanese businessmen and kind of being like, yeah. you know, 
Mr. Takagi, born in such and such, had a degree in this, had a degree in that. Um, and then finally, Mr. Takagi steps forward. So at least, Hans, Germans aren't racist, are they? They at least try no. to, you know. <laughs> I mean, he even gave Ellis a fair shake. He was looking at Ellis at one point. And exactly. Like, no, not me. <laughs> he could have, you know, had a Japanese parents, something like that. Like, you know. Not- yeah, exactly. Um, wait, wait, who's this now? Japanese name, so he has to look Japanese? Yeah, Ben. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, where are we up to? So, he, Mr. Takagi finally steps forward, um, and uh, John McClane is uh, looking at all, all these, all the bad guys essentially coming in with all these missiles and bombs, and John McClane is seeing everything along this. We've got this big room with all the models in it, and kind of Hans, he's just got this way about it. This is kind of what's so good about Hans Gruber as a villain, and this is, I guess, what makes a really good villain in so many things, is that you've got that, just that calmness about him, and just kind of the, the way yeah. he says things, and it's kind of... You know, yeah, you, you, it's good to have a villain who's over the top and kind of cartoonish every now and then, but it's also good to have that real calmness. Like, I don't think you've ever really mm-hmm. seen Breaking Bad, but like, what makes Gustav Fring such a great villain and kind of an iconic villain is he's just, just the calmness and the way he goes about things. It is just an absolute prick. Uh, and this is kind of Hans Gruber here, who is, I mean, look, Alan Rickman's accent, shall we comment here? <laughs> the, the German thing Very kind British. of goes in and out, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, I mean, at the same time, really, I don't know if any of them have, maybe a couple of them have slight German accents, but it's kind of an international group. Oh, I, I, I'm not really able to defend that. I'm like, we got the Texan guy at the front desk. We got the, uh, the Asian guy who, you know, we previously saw on Godzilla we talked about, but he is named Hans Gruber and they do identify him as a German terrorist. <laughs> Sorry, no defense there. That is the most German name ever. Like that Hans is like, Gruber. That is like calling an American like I don't know Brad Jones or something like that. <laughs> John McLean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, calling an Australian like Kevin Dundee or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Canadian um, Wayne A. I I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> through all of this. Uh, Hans Gruber wants access to the computer. We find out that he's trying to steal 600 and, is it $650 million worth of Barabons? Um, 40. 640. That's $10 million off. Uh, and that he doesn't necessarily need Mr. Takagi to get in this, but it will make his life a little bit easier. Um, and Mr. Takagi's like, you know, even if I give you this code, it's not going to work because, you know, people back in Japan are going to do this. You know, you may as well just kill me. And I just love the way Hans Gruber's like, okay. And then bang. Uh, okay. <laughs> So that was makes a great villain. Like, I love it in, like, movies yeah. and TV shows when you have, like... Because it's just a cliche, this kind of back and forth, and you know, oh, they're not going to kill him, that's all right. And it's just because we're always screaming at the TV, like, just kill him if this is real life. Like, yeah. kill him. Don't tell him your world-breaking plan. <laughs> like, right now, kill him. So what is he like, you may as well kill me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, And this is kind of... Is this the first time where the word terrorist is dropped as well? And, it's, and he's kind of yeah. like, who says we're... Ter- oh, I'm not going to do the German... Hello, I'm British. I'm Alan Rickman. Who said, <laughs> who said we're terrorists? <laughs> um, he, we also find out that there's seven, uh, I guess, levels that they've got to do to hack into ultimately this safe. 
Um, and that, again, by getting this code, it's going to make their first one easier. But we're going to see Theo is going to be able to break through all of these anyway, except for the last one. And it's kind of going to be a great plan here by Hans Gruber to get through that seventh one. Um, so where are we here? Argyle is still in the limo talking to a girl on the phone. That's great. Um, uh, Bruce Willis, <laughs> I'm just calling him Bruce Willis one minute, John McClane the next, is yelling out the window, <laughs> basically like, tell me you heard those shots, Argyle, tell me you heard those shots. Um, and this is where we also learn, uh, through Theo that, yeah, he's going to be able to break all the codes. It's going to take time. It's that seventh one. Uh, Bruce Willis sets off the fire alarm and this is going to get a bit of attention. And I love how John McClane's like yelling out the window, like at the fire truck, saying, come on, yes, yes, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and is this where for the first time he go on the radio where he's talking to him in the radio? Cause he's saying the fire has been called off. Oh no, the guy comes up the elevator, doesn't he? So, uh, we're on Carl. Carl. Yes. On the floor above. Uh, talking to John McClane, saying that the um, the fire has been called off. Uh, they have a bit of a shootout, a bit of a fight. There's a drop it dickhead line. That was going to be my opening line, but I went for the other one as well. Um, and what does he say? Like, I'm a policeman. And he's like, oh, you know, then I know you can't kill me because there are rules for policemen. He's like, yeah, that's what my sergeant keeps telling me. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it when he has his little uh, lines like that. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll just end it there because I'm kind of just going through a bunch of stuff here. But, uh, yeah, it's great. Like, the thing is with this movie, though, I think moving forward, we're going to, we're going to have a lot of action and fight sequences. We're not necessarily going to do a blow by blow, play by play. But, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's one bad but- action set piece in this movie, is there? I mean, it's, it's basically sold as the greatest action movie of all time. And there's a, there's a reason behind that. Yeah. Um, but you, you, you are leaving it off. After the fight scene with Carl here, right? Yes, yes. Just at the fight okay. scene with Carl. So, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, because that, that was one of the things I thought was that, you know, this movie's not going to go that long, uh, or this episode's not going to go that long because half the movie's action, and what do you say? There's guns firing. And then you watch it, and you're like, there is so much going on in these action scenes that I actually want to talk about, but I can't because we can't spend nine hours on this episode. Um the action in this, before I even get to some of the earlier scenes, the action is, like, so inventive. And everything you're seeing, as many times as you've seen this movie, it doesn't just look like bullets firing and people punching. Just the, the way that John McClane fights. its He fights so dirty where he'll just punch somebody in the ear instead of punching them in the face, you know? Where it just it, – it, it makes it look interesting in a way you hadn't seen it before. I just love that. Um yeah, I love when uh, the, the terrorists first start coming in the building. Sorry, when the, the thieves first start coming in the building. <laughs> and I don't know. I never noticed it. I'm, I don't know if you ever did, but I never noticed it only until this one time when I watched it. But like the Ode to Joy mm. that is played later on, which kind of has become synonymous as like the theme of this movie. It's a very sinister, quiet version of that as they're sort of walking down the hall the first time with Hans and everybody else behind him. Um, it, it sounds incredible. And I love the score for this movie. I think that it's, it's, it's kind of un, un, not unappreciated, but like underrated. Definitely uh, how powerful like an action movie score could be because there's parts of this movie where it's giant action scenes and it's, just kind of like quiet, more melodic music that's great. And Michael Kamen, who did the music for this, a year earlier he had done Lethal Weapon, uh, which I guess was the precursor. And we sort of talked about how this was the beginning of the modern action era. There were a couple movies that preceded it, which definitely need to be mentioned. 
Because if you look like movies from the 60s, 70s, action was like James Bond-style action. You know, you had action scenes, but it wasn't like super violent. It wasn't gritty, and it wasn't, you know, nonstop action. Um, you get, you know, in the early 80s, First Blood, and then Rambo to the Rambo series, essentially, which really brought in the violent R-rated action movie. But again, that's more like military style. And then Lethal Weapon comes the year before this movie comes out, which was definitely more of a comedy and detective story, but the action they had in it was closer to what they would end up doing in Die Hard. You know, Mel Gibson was playing like a special forces guy, but it still it started to have that feel of like the the modern action hero. And Michael came into the music for Lethal Weapon, and the differences between the scores for Lethal Weapon and this are like night and day. Like Lethal Weapon's using like kind of a jazzy score with harmonicas and guitars and everything. And then Die Hard, it's there's a lot of like horn instruments, which we could do a whole episode just breaking down the score of Die Hard and how great it is. Um, but the music adds so much to this movie, so much that it's taken me what like 25 years now to catch on. But Oh DeJoy is played in that intro, uh, and I love the scene. Just anything Hans Gruber does, but especially this in- introductory scene when he's looking for Takagi and running down all the facts about him. And I love how he'll pause every time he looks at somebody. And then it is, like, I joked about it, but he actually stops on Ellis at one point when he's giving his facts. And what makes it funny is he's clearly just doing that, like, looking at Ellis, like, you know, seeing it, do I make you nervous? But Ellis, probably because he's high as a kite, very sincerely kind of smiles and is like, no, not me. Like, as if he actually thought, it's like, (laughs) this terrorist is thinking I'm Takagi. Let me just give him a nod. No, not me. Like, Ellis not even joking about it. He's so sincere. And it's like, no. (laughs) No. Uh, and Ellis smiles the whole movie. Like, did you honestly, you said you were kind of surprised, like, oh, we're supposed to like him. Did you not really like Ellis watching this? I mean, you know, it's kind of like one of those ones which I know, obviously, we're meant to hate. But mm. I don't know. Like, he's, he's never one I've really gone out of my way to kind of be like, oh, yeah, he's, you know. I see, like, the redeemingness about him kind of as, like, what we do on this show. And kind of like, oh, he's that random one that we like. But yeah. um, I don't know. I think I'm just too in love with Hans Gruber to care for another prick in this movie. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is is that there's two characters in this movie that I hated when I was a kid. Ellis is one of them. The other one was Theo, believe it or not. Hmm. And there was something just about how loud and obnoxious Theo was uh, and you know, with all of his like quick-fire one-liners where it just bugged me. I found him annoying. And then the older I got, the more I loved both Ellis and Theo. See, I love Theo. I, Theo's amazing, yeah. And, and I can't now I look back and I can't believe there was a time where I'm like, this guy bugged me. Um, but like Ellis is, I think it was a slower progression with Ellis where I'm like, well, I guess he's not bad. Well, I kind of get the point of the character and now I'm like, man, he is so good. Uh, and the actor never really went on to do much. Um, the only thing I, I ever saw him in outside of this was, uh, a couple of years prior to this, he appeared as like the, the damsel in distress in the, the original Supergirl movie. Um, and it was a completely different role. Like he was playing the male damsel in distress, but he's got so much personality in this, and I do want to dispel a myth that a lot of people have uh, said, and I even heard it on another podcast this week, and I read it on the trivia on IMDb, and I'm sure it's even been spoken in interviews from my crew members that uh, this actor, Hart Bachner, that he wasn't supposed to play this as like this you know, cokehead, uh, sleazy businessman, and that he kind of improvised that. It's completely false. Like the, the rumors are that John McTiernan didn't want him to do this, and he kind of slowly put in the character. There is nothing subtle about Ellis. There is no way 
any of this stuff gets done and John McTiernan doesn't get what he's doing. And secondly, if you read up on the history, the original novel, this character of Ellis, was exactly the same. He was a sleazy uh, businessman who was a cocaine addict in the book. So this isn't something – I don't know where that rumor sort of started that, like, this actor came up with this character against John McTiernan's, you know, better judgment. Uh, it's obviously was always intended to be this way, but I just I just love everything Ellis does in this movie. Um, he reminds me of Al Bolin. Like, look, is it wise. the beard? Yeah, like the the well, look yeah, of mean, him. Like, okay, personality, no. <laughs> Secretly, Al was out the back of Tool Time, <laughs> sniffing coke, <laughs> trying to crack on the Jill every five minutes. <laughs> Tim, frequency talk. <laughs> Come on, I make really dollar bills like this over breakfast, Tim. <laughs> Tim, booby. <laughs> I don't think so, John McClane. <laughs> Woo! I don't think John's so, booby. <laughs> oh my god. We gotta do a mashup of these guys. But like, um, you can see the, the, you see the okay, appearance. Wait. Like, they're very similar looking people. Both <laughs> have dark hair and a beard. I mean, Al Borla's about 50 pounds heavier. It's racist, Ben. Where's <laughs> flannel? I think Ellis is supposed to be like the sleazy, you know, uh, coked up, um, womanizing. This is everything Al Borla is. <laughs> I can't on, Al Borla's a womanizer, you know? Him and Heidi. Not- <laughs> well, maybe you got something there. Uh, but you cannot have drawn a parallel between two characters that are such polar opposites, any more so than if you had said, you know who the Snape guy kind of reminds me of? Jesus Christ. <laughs> again, you know, Ben just being racist hot. again, just because two white people have a beard, they must be the same person. Snape and Jesus, both hot in book form, you know? <laughs> Well, have you read the Home Improvement novelization? I'll tell you what, dude, that Al Bourne. Oh, you think Fifty Shades of Grey gets you moist? Whoa. <laughs> Alice and Al Borland, long lost brothers, please. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to move on, otherwise this is going to go the whole episode. Um, yeah, like, and, and Takagi also, for a small role... One of the things I like about this movie is every character that has even one line of dialogue is is just memorable in some way. Like the guy who mans the desk, the the Texan terrorist who mans the desk, he's got lines where I'm like, man, this guy's great. And Takagi's another one, just like his calm delivery, as calm as Gruber is, what makes the upcoming scene, I guess the negotiation over this code with Takagi work so well, is that not only is Hans Gruber really calm and not over the top, but like Takagi is just like, I don't have the code. You're just going to have to kill me, you know? Mm. And it actually builds the tension even more because that's one of those examples where the music's actually very soft there. And another thing I wanted to mention about that scene was um, uh, I mentioned how my mom got this. is like my first VHS for me. And I think almost not even quite 10 years later, but like uh, early days of DVDs, uh, the first year I had a DVD player. Uh, that Christmas, my mom got me the Die Hard DVD, which the Die Hard DVD that came out like 2000 or 2001 was probably one of the most loaded DVDs I had ever seen at the time and maybe even still to this day. And it actually included a feature where you could re-edit a scene of the movie. And it was this huh. scene with Gruber and Takagi where he shoots them and they included alternate takes. So you would basically have this 10 second uh, section of this scene 
and you pick between four different angles that they actually have. And then you rewatch your scene. It was kind of cool. Uh, but every time I watch a scene, I always think, man, I want to go back and see those alternate takes. Because one of these takes, <clears throat> there's a very over-the-top blood splatter where it's like actually looking at Takagi's face and his head explode out of the back, which is great. Uh, but like the tension of this scene is just incredible. Like John McTiernan is maybe one of the great action directors, if not the greatest of all time. Like if you make an Academy Awards for just action movies, I think John McTiernan takes best, best director hands down. Um, and of course that line where, you know, he says, what kind of terrorists are you? And he just sort of laughs at who says we were terrorists. There, they state right at the beginning, we're not terrorists, but then they slowly develop things later on. I think it's partly because they're playing the role of terrorists still that makes this so much more fun when even later on other people are caught off like where there's a line that Holly has about you're you're just a common thief. Um, the idea of the terrorists versus the thieves is the, basically the only thing they apparently changed from the novel other than like the John McClane character obviously being changed from the Frank Sinatra detective or whatever. But in the novel, they were actual terrorists and the idea was still there about them stealing the the bonds, the $640 million or whatever, but they were actually meant to kind of throw it away. And there's – I'll mention on the end how they included a bit of that. But uh, in the movie here, the idea of just saying, no, they're not terrorists, they're thieves. Like that's, again, such an 80s thing. Like even the terrorists were just capitalists. They just wanted money. Wasn't it a great time to be alive, the 80s? Oh, God, the 80s. Oh, don't oh. you miss it? Innocent sex <laughs> in the office. Cocaine, yeah. <laughs> not always confused as a terrorist just because, you know, you wanted some money. Oh, good old days. Um, pregnant women getting loaded at Christmas parties. Oh, you know, cops that... getting a bunch of Twinkies and ding-dongs and, you know, <laughs> subtle stereotypes about their weight. Um, oh, when it was okay to have a, a racist stereotype of an immigrant Hispanic <laughs> housekeeper. <laughs> What a time uh, to be alive! Domestic violence could be joked about and just <laughs> laughed off. Oh. oh, the 80s! Remember the good old days! So good. Robert Darby! Uh, Robert Darby! Oh! <laughs> uh, but, uh, one of the things that, uh, works so well about this too is the, the way he shoots Takagi. This isn't just, well, I want you to get this for me. Like, it's not just this is the type of guy that Gruber is, where it's like, if somebody says I'll kill him, I'll kill him. It's not just meant as a surprise to the audience. It actually makes sense when you listen to the rest of the scene, because he says, I don't, like you said, I don't need you for this code, but it'll make my life easier. And then after he shoots him, he turns to Theo and says, you can break the code, right? He goes, well, you didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And then Theo runs down a timeline of how this is going to happen. And he says, 30 minutes to break the code, two hours to get through the locks. And you realize, like, he was only trying to save 30 minutes here. <laughs> like, all of this with Takagi. He killed a man because he, he was given a chance. Like, listen, I don't want to kill you. I want to try to save myself 30 minutes here. We're on a time crutch. <laughs> this is the 80s. Time is valuable. Time is money. <laughs> save me 30 minutes here, Takagi. <laughs> That's all this death came down to. Is that Theo says, it'll take me 30 minutes to break the locks. And he told them that up front. He says, we're going to do this with or without you. Just help me out here. It's just, it's amazing. Um, and then John, when he like, uh, the, just the ingenuity where he's like, I'm not going to storm in there and kill these terrorists. He even says, you know, why didn't you, uh, why did you do something? Cause then you would have been dead too. Like he knows it's not bright to be the guy who storms in there and saves the day. So he's like, I'll pull a fire alarm. <laughs> it's not like it's a cowardly thing to do, but it's not what you expect any action hero to be. It's like, there's a guy who's about to be killed. Okay. I'm going to let him die. 
and then I'm going to go pull the fire alarm, and then I'm going to hide on another floor. <laughs> and this is a cop. <laughs> but he's not a coward. It's just, it makes sense. Uh, and then Carl. So Carl's the first fight scene we have here. I don't think you would recognize him from anything, because it, it, he's only, he's appeared in two other major movies that we've talked about on other podcasts. But, is he in Titanic? Uh, no! Is he in the room? Sorry, good. <laughs> oh, at least one of them. Um, this guy, Carl, who is less recognizable here because his hair is different and he is wearing glasses, uh, and he's the first one killed in the movie. This is Necros, the milk no. bomber in the living... Yeah. <laughs> oh. And also, he's one of Max's henchmen in Mission Impossible 1, who's also the guy that comes back and goes protocol as the henchman for the the other Russian, for Bogdan's cousin or whatever. So this guy's appeared in four movies we've covered on two separate podcasts. Great actor, great filmography. And basically those are the only things... So I'm just sorry, I'm just... I'm literally thinking... "Mm," When you said, like, something to do with Max. So (laughs) he's dead, though, (laughs) now. Did you know he's dead? That's why his filmography is so short. Yeah. He was still in... Ghost Protocol was only, like, five, six years ago? Wait, no. Hang on. Carl. You're talking about Carl, right? Oh, sorry, not Carl. Tony. Oh, Carl, Tony. Carl and- Carl's was- dead? Yeah. Carl died in 1995. I'm like, Jesus Christ. He's he's come back from the dead to be in Ghost Protocol. <laughs> no, I, they're supposed to be brothers in this movie. They're both blonde Germans. Yeah, yes. but Tony, the oh. guy who gets ho-ho-ho paid. Andreas That's- Wisniewski. Okay, yeah, I've got you now. got you now. Yeah, that's Necros, the milk milk bomber or whatever. Yes. Uh, oh, good old Necros. Yeah, and it's a. I, I love the way that the scene ends too when he's chasing him across the table. Like just the way John McTiernan films things, especially when there's any type of movement, uh, when there's tension of like you've got nowhere to go. It's going to come up a couple other times, but this is the first time he uses like the camera moving when uh, Tony here is on the table. And you know, basically, you got nowhere to go. And I love the way he says it too. He goes, "No more table. Were you gonna go, pal?" Mocking <laughs> <laughs> like the American, pal. Uh, and then John just fires, and that's when he gives a like, "Thanks for the advice." <laughs> what a snarky one. Um, but if you watch the way that he shoots that, like the camera is sort of like moving left to right as it's walking across the table. And then you'll cut to John underneath it. Like it just creates this feeling of, he literally has nowhere to go. And like, you're on the edge of your seat because you're looking at the view of a camera or cameraman in this case, who's like balancing on the end of the table. It's just, it's a little subtle trick that works so well in a scene like this. It could have been a camera woman, Colin. Like, don't be so sexist. It could have been a Hispanic immigrant. (laughs) (laughs) Could have been Al Borland. All right? Yeah. <laughs> Coked out of his mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so, Tim. Uh... <laughs> Al, get off the table. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we've got now maybe one of the most iconic scenes in the movie where um, I guess John McClane looks at the... sees like a Santa and has a bit of a smile... Uh, Hans Gruber is sitting on the table saying that Mr. Takagi isn't joining. I just, I just love the sort of the sinister way he's just there, what, sitting on the table eating whatever he's eating, as if they're like, I'm evil, I'm going to eat, because that's what evil people do. Um, and then the elevator comes down, we've got Fabio, the guard, like, with his hair. Oh, the 80s, <laughs> long-haired men that didn't have to put him in man buns. Oh, those were the days. Um, Why does all the henchmen look like Fabio in this movie? 
Was that German? Wasn't Fabio German? Is Fabio really a terrorist? <laughs> Where was Fabio from? Uh, who is he? Uh, from Germany. Europe. Uh, <laughs> he, he looks like a terrorist to me. The way you say that. Europe. Uh, oh, he's Italian. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's in Europe, uh, isn't it? <laughs> Just not not being... like they never did anything bad. Exactly. Mussolini. Um, I don't know what that means. Um, but so, like, the elevator opens. Fabio has this massive shock look on his face because here is old Necros sitting on his chair with a Santa hat on, with a jumper on. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, such a great scene. Uh, you don't even need to say, although Hans Groove is going to say it in about five minutes. Um, which is just so funny the way he says it. Uh, and through all this, um, McLean's gotten the radio for the first time. Uh, he runs up the stairs. We see a n- more boobs. There's a nude calendar. Um, <laughs> and he's writing names down on his wrist as he's hearing through the, uh, the radio. This is where, uh, Carl, the brother, is all like, oh, he killed my brother. Um, that's not how <laughs> That's your German accent. <laughs> oh, oh he Kermit. killed my brother. Kids, my brother! Yeah? Uh, oh, hidey hole there, Carl! <laughs> this is your dead brother Tony here! <laughs> I'm very German, and I was Irish! What's going on? <laughs> oh, to be sure, me Irish, me German accent's gone down this way! <laughs> this episode is just full of racial stereotypes! Yeah, the Hispanics are all housekeepers! <laughs> Let's offend the Irish now while we're at it. <laughs> oh, why, why not? Quality um. <laughs> Can I just... This is a completely off-base story here. <laughs> Jamie always reminds me of this. Uh, years ago, I, I was uh, doing work for um, a customer uh, in my original hometown of LaSalle, Manitoba. And uh, it was a really difficult customer. And eventually, like, these people end up loving me so much so that they sent, like home all this this stuff for me all these gifts and like they were ready to kick me out of the house in the beginning and uh they they had like very heavy i don't know if it was scottish or irish but one of those very heavy accent and um i told this to jamie i'm like oh yeah this really nice like irish or scottish couple or whatever in LaSalle. and then a couple of days later she was at her job and these customers called in about something else like not we weren't even working the same company this was like completely separate issue and she just heard this heavy accent and saw LaSalle and goes you know my husband was in LaSalle you know did you ever this? and then they're like oh Colin he was a fine lad <laughs> she always says that to this day whenever she hears my name she'll go Colin he was a fine lad <laughs> <laughs> well you are that's true um, that's what I was going to say on my gravestone Colin he was a fine lad please <laughs> mine's going to say Ben he told you he was sick <laughs> Oh. Racist. <laughs> Racist with an arrow pointing down. That's what's on your gravestone. <laughs> Deserved it. Racist. Pervert. <laughs> Pedophile. <laughs> Probably, well, sexist. Probably homophobic. Uh, <laughs> Australian. <laughs> Let's just sum it up. Australian. <laughs> Likes die another day. Oh. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> All right. Um, so we can be talking about the Die Cinematic Universe here. Die Hard, Die Another Day. <laughs> the DC. Die, Ben, Die. <laughs> 
diet. Uh, <laughs> one of the funniest Simpsons bits ever on that X-Files episode when he's running through the forest and he sees that sign. It's like, die. He's like, ah! Then the tree moves and he sees diet. Ah! <laughs> oh, my Lord. Um... It wouldn't be an episode without referencing The Simpsons. And it also wouldn't be an, ep- uh, an episode by saying it's coarse, it's rough, it's irritating, it gets everywhere. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> practicing, practicing. Um, so, yes, I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Um, nude calendar, boobs. Um, <laughs> goes up to the roof and uh, now McLean's got his radio, puts it on to emergency channel nine and... Oh, uh, he's basically saying, you know, mayday, mayday. And then we've got the worst radio, uh, room ever. <laughs> like the emergency <laughs> services. This channel is, uh, reserved for emergencies only. It's like, well, no fucking shit, woman. Like, wh- who are these people to just, like, guess? Oh, no, that's, cl- <laughs> Nakatami Plaza. Clearly, they're just joking. <laughs> like, if this was 2018, you would just say hello and they would send, like, SWAT over there in, like, five seconds. Like, who yep. is this woman? She's the worst at her job. Like, does she work for 911? Help me, help me, I've been shot. Are you sure you've been shot? You're not in a bad area of town. I think this is a mistake. <laughs> California. <laughs> yeah. This is California. Terrorist attacks don't happen here. <laughs> it's like this is Winnipeg. Uh, <laughs> well, we get that line from, from Dick later on too, when he's like, Los Angeles now, uh, joins the, the, the list of cities who have been struck by terror. <laughs> like, this is a prestigious list to get on. <laughs> like, I guess in 1988, uh, and check my facts here, terrorist experts, but had like the US, <laughs> the mainland US actually at that point ever been attacked by a terrorist? Like, I don't. Um- no. I mean, terrorists, no. You could say Pearl Harbor, you know, and, and saying, like, mainland US. Like, I mean, the Oklahoma take bombings that. weren't... O- Oklahoma bombings weren't... That was domestic terrorism, and then the first World Trade Center bombing was, like, like 93. So... Tape decks! Tape decks! <laughs> tape decks! Sorry, yes, tape decks, of course. <laughs> the Japanese terrorists, they're the real evil people in this movie. <laughs> Um, but seriously, like, this woman is terrible. Uh, so yeah. Hans Gruber is essentially like, I'll oh, let them send the police. Uh, and then they're like, oh, you know, let's see if there's a black and white, uh, to, you know, do a drive by. And for the first time in this movie, we meet, uh, is he the star of the star of this movie? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> now this is Owl, isn't it? This is Owl Borland? <laughs> this is a Owl. 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 <laughs> It's an uh, owl. Sergeant, Sergeant Al Pal. Is that his name? Al Pal? Yeah. yeah. Al Pal. <laughs> Sounds like something Casper should be playing with. Hey, go Casper. Owl play. is the toy. <laughs> the owl. hot toy on the market this Christmas. The Al Pal. <laughs> this is a uh, jingle all the way too. What uh, Larry the Cable Guy was after. The Al Pal. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Larry, if you're listening. Hope you haven't been masturbating in front of women any anytime soon recently. <laughs> <laughs> you dirty, dirty man, you. Um, <laughs> so he's in a like a Seven Eleven style short store buying all these ding dongs and whatever our Twinkies, and we've got like <laughs> the biggest dick of a shopkeeper. Thought you guys only ate donuts. Like, what the fucking idiot? Like, come on. This is pre-Rodney King LA riots. Like, no wonder everyone kind of, like, ended up bashing the cops up. They're just judgmental of them. Like, oh, but you're only eating donuts. 
<laughs> like, what is this guy? Uh, gets a call over the radio to check out uh, the plaza. And he walks outside, looks up, and he sees, like, these flashing going on. Because at this point, uh, Gruber sent up a bunch of henchmen to go after McLean. Now, it's pretty quiet in downtown LA on this Christmas Eve. Are you not going to hear a machine gun fire on the top of however many stories this is? I'm sorry, but you're still going to hear machine gun fire on top of that building. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one thing which is kind of like, okay, come on. Um, but yeah, to see the flashing is kind of cool. And McLean's uh, escaping through everything here. Jumps down a, I guess, like a, a fan section. Blocks the fan off. And I love how he kind of like falls through the thing and he runs back past that, the nude calendar. <laughs> he's kind of like, yeah. that's and like, girls. <laughs> hey, girls. <laughs> uh, goes down the uh, elevator shaft. And this is kind of what you were mentioning before about how kind of like he's just... Just an everyman here is kind of working his way through this situation that he's kind of pinning this open with the door and dangling by a strap. Um, you know, very clever, and I guess kind of something that you would see if you and I were in this situation. Well, let's say, let's if you were in this situation, me, I'm crying with you. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've got over this before. I'm a war, so I'm not doing anything like this. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got to make do with what you've got. Um, he ends up falling through into an air duct. And we get one of the uh, the great one-liners of this movie. Come to the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great one-line. And I, I like the line he follows it up with when he's like, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he uh, sort of gets out to another floor. We see uh, Al Pal driving around uh, the bottom, comes inside, goes a bit of a closer look. We meet our... Uh, our terrorist, uh, sorry, thief, uh, who's pretending to be the clerk who puts on the Texan accent. Um, and what is he watching, like a football game? Like, I got $50 oh. on these assholes. Um, because there's a football game on Christmas Eve? Like, in the daytime? Oh, it, gets, it gets better. <laughs> because they're saying Notre Dame and USC. So this is a college, a school football game on Christmas Eve. They make students play football at Christmas. Again, during the day. And, like, this is the West Coast where we know the rest of the country is in darkness. Yeah. I don't understand California. Like, sure, this is the the part where you're going to say, sorry, Sergeant Alpow, you're the dumb one because clearly this German guy is like, I know what will make them think I'm American. Watching football. Um, He just (laughs) pressed, like, play on a VHS tape. And Sergeant Alpow... You know, the good old American cop who should be like, wait a minute, I watched this game two days ago. <laughs> like, good job doing your cup here, Al Pal. Uh, <laughs> um, he has a look around, uh, doesn't see anything, leaves, and meanwhile, McLean's getting into a fight with somebody upstairs. Uh, sees Al Pal driving off and he ends up throwing a body outside the window. <laughs> Which I love it. I just love the way he just reacts and he's like reverses and he's all like, ah! And like smashes back down and then we get another great one liner of, welcome to the party, pal! Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, uh, I've written down here Arnold. Why have I written Arnold? Argyle. He's <laughs> in his limo still listening to Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. It's on repeat. <laughs> <laughs> a million and one cop cars arrive, 
Um, and this is where we get for the first time McLean and Hans Gruber have a bit of a conversation over the radio. I've written here, Bruce calls Hans. Um, so, yep. Uh, he guesses he's a security guard. And we get, wrong answer. Uh, and at this point, I have to question when, like, he doesn't change his shirt, does he? Like, because his white singlet has kind of gone very dark at this point. And I don't know, is that meant to be blood? Like, sweat? Soot? Like, is there an explanation behind this? Uh, blood? I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, he killed like a man. But it's almost like a greeny-brown blood. Like, what colour of blood well, do Germans have? He's He's been crawling through duct work as well, so it's probably a lot of dirt mixed in with the blood. Right, okay. There's an explanation. I thought just at one point he just stepped in and changed his singlet over because he likes it. I don't know. Germans um, have different color blood than the rest of the world. <laughs> Clearly. It's a racial stereotype, but it's true. It is. Everyone knows it. It's, it you know, World War Two and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, great conversation here, though, between Hans and McLean, um, which kind of Hans Gruber is like, you know, you Americans, you think you're John McLean or uh, John McLean. John <laughs> McLean. <laughs> He's foreshadowing this. Die Hard becomes a very big movie. I think you're John McClane. He's clairvoyant, apparently. I know. Jesus, it's like breaking the fourth wall here or something along those lines. I think you're Rambo or John Wayne. Um, and this is where we get the great, maybe the one line that this movie's best known for is when he essentially says to John McClane, says Hans Gruber, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Um, which, let's be honest, this is what it's surely best known for when it comes to one-liners. What does that even mean? Is that just kind of like, yippee-ki-yay? Like, I mean, am I dumb not I think to it's understand? like a cow- an old cowboy thing. Right. And he just adds motherfucker to the end of it because he's yeah. in the 80s and cool. Um. <laughs> exactly. Uh, That's a constant cowboy thing with him, like even with the name Roy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'll just kind of add on to this. We get our first uh, taste of journalists in this movie. Oh, Ben gets excited yeah. because once again, journalists are assholes because that's the stereotype. All journalists are assholes. Let's be honest. We really are. Um, they're about to go live on air for like the 10 o'clock news or something like that. But uh, the reporter guys heard this over the uh, the radio and uh, they're not going to go to air with it. Which, I mean, in all fairness, I think the TV crews are kind of right not to go to there. And, like, I mean, if we published every single story that we heard over the police radio, like, oh, we just heard something to this. Oh, wait, no, no facts. Can't do anything. Um, so there is that. And this is when uh, John McClane, speaking to our pal for the first time, uh, talks, uh, tells them what's going on, that there's mostly European terrorists. They've got detonators in bags. Um, and you need to know what's going on up here. And we get the, what do I call you? Call me Roy. (laughs) Roy boy. I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. I'll cap it at that point. But some great stuff going here. Great dialogue. You know, we've got great action scenes. But I think kind of, you know, for an action movie, uh, for it to make it a great action movie, which this is, the uh you mentioned about how the characters anyone who's ever on screen is great but just the the dialogue and the back and forth between the two because i mean let's be honest john mcclane and al pal are just speaking pretty much 98 percent of this whole movie are on radios to each other but they've got great chemistry and kind of just the way they're able to talk to each other is fantastic so yeah everything going on is great there's nothing bad here you could tell what our rating's going to be on the end of this episode already uh (laughs) we're binning this um um First, I want to make a correction. Uh, I added two sequences together, and I always get confused with this one, but it wasn't 
uh, Tony on the table with the whole uh, uh, no more table, pal. Uh, <laughs> that's in the sequence going to come here because the reason I was confused that is because John's in the the room where Takagi gets killed. And then he goes upstairs, but then he comes back down to the room, which is – it's that second sequence when the guy's on the table uh, and then he shoots him through the table that is kind of basically – I wasn't going to say anything. Just... I just thought I'd let you correct yourself, Colin. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and here's a little bit of trivia. Bonnie Bedelia, who plays Holly in this movie, is Macaulay Culkin's aunt. Oh, wow. <laughs> what? I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I, I'm – Still trying to find like how they're related, if it's just by marriage or if it's by blood or whatever. But uh, yeah, she's apparently well the aunt of all the Culkins. Um, <laughs> Michael Jackson was involved in this somewhere. I don't know. Here we go. So she is the sister of Macaulay Culkin's dad and wow. the Culkin family's dad. There's no so family Home resemblance Alone is whatsoever. connected to Die Hard, so they're all in the yes. same MCU. Oh, great. Yeah. You know, we're always seeing, like, Kevin's dad's family, his his yeah. uncles on that side. We never see the mom's family. Now we know. Yeah. They're in California. That's and where they are. And we, there's always that, like, ongoing thing about, like, how the hell does Kevin's family afford a massive mansion yeah. and be able to take the whole family to Paris? <laughs> well, there you go, because Holly's their aunt, and she's a big executive at the Nakatoma Plaza. Like, simple, yeah. simple. Yeah. Uh, this is incredible. I never knew that. And also... You, I can see no family resemblance whatsoever, but like she is like directly related. She is their hey, blood aunt. Hey, you wait until you see her put her hands on her chin and go ah in a mirror. Then it just comes out. <laughs> can we get just one photo of that, please? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, okay, so uh, going back, uh, one thing I want to add. Uh, well, I guess this is technically where we started, but after he kills Tony. Before he drops the body, and it's great how he writes that on there. You know, now I have a machine gun, and also just that he uses that to get information. Like this is just this is the boldest he's going to be in the movie. There's no other point in the movie where he goes looking for trouble. All he's trying to get is information. He just wants to get the information from the cops and sit there. Like when Al eventually shows up, he's like, "Just leave it to us." He goes way ahead of you. Know, it's in your hands now. But he's like, I need to give them something. So he uses this and sits on top of the elevator in complete safety just to write down the names he hears. So they're like, Carl, what did they do to Tony? Who's, or, or, uh, Hans, what did they do to Tony? Who's going to tell Carl? And he's just writing their names, counting how many of them there are, and then getting whatever information he can. Um, but I love that he's barefoot in this movie, which also a bit of, I'm not going to say plot hole, but like, cause he's changing when the gunshots first start, when, uh, the, the terrorists or whatever come in. I understand he didn't have his shoes on the time, but, like, they couldn't have been very far away. I doubt he left his shoes, like, down the hall when he came in here to wash up. So he should have shoes in this movie, but he doesn't. But when he kills Tony and he takes the shoes and he goes, nine million terrorists in the world and I have to kill one with feet smaller than my, uh, feet smaller than my sister. <laughs> just the way he talks to himself. Like you mentioned, all these lines that he has is just great. Um, and uh, also just... Alan Rickman's delivery. Like, first of all, can we just say, does Alan Rickman have one of the greatest voices in the history of movies? Just period. Not just his accent, but like the way he speaks is just perfect. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, he's up there with Liam Neeson, where it's like, his voice is just amazing. Did he do much but narration? You- like, he should be like a Morgan Freeman. Like, <laughs> He's dead, so he won't do much of it anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, beforehand, Colin, people can do things when they're yeah. alive. 
Yeah, well, you could include them in that group of like Liam Neeson's and Morgan Freeman's, where it's just their voice is so distinctive and so powerful, and it would just sound great doing anything. Uh, but then you add to it his delivery, because so much of this movie is his delivery, it's his facial expressions, sometimes his lack of facial expressions. Like, when he comes in to tell all the hostages... And he's like, you know, I wanted to do this uh, working with professionalism, efficiency, cooperation. But your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way. So he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. And he just yeah. like, leaves on that down note. It's like, moving on for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, it's so good. I, oh, I, like, I, Here's the other thing. The, the character in this movie, because we're going to get into the cops in the next bit. But even if we include some of the terrorists in here... Um, uh, some like the the hostages, like Ellis. Everybody in this movie is a complete boob. The the reporters, uh, and that's one of the few criticisms this movie gets is that they go too far in making everybody else in this movie too dumb. I talked about my complaint in Titanic that in order to make Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet the heroes of the movie, they had to go too far in making everybody else a complete idiot. This movie does the same thing, but it's different. It's the way it's handled because Titanic did that in a movie that's technically a tragedy to basically say, well, all these people who died in a real-life tragedy, they were dumb. And the only reason our characters are good are because everybody else is dumb. They make John McClane a hero in their own way. But making everybody else extra dumb, it just it, – it's, it's there to make John frustrated. It's not done because they have no better way to sell John as the hero of the movie. So let's make the police, the FBI, the dispatch operator, like you mentioned. That's that's the the main one where it was one of the first characters in the movie where you're like, nobody in real life is this dumb. But they're not doing it because it was an 80s stereotype that like anybody in authority figure had to be an idiot. They're not doing it because they have no other way to get John over as a character. This is done because how else is this very stressed out guy just going to be like pushed to the breaking point? The entire character of John McClane hinges on him being the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time and being that out-of-shape guy, being that guy who acts older than he is, who's stubborn, who's pig-headed, who just wants to pull a fire alarm and sit on the floor and wait for the police to come even though he's a police officer. To have everybody else be such idiots in this movie, that's what makes it so great when he starts calling people jerkweed or uh, punching them in the ear or whatever else happens later on. Uh, so I think it's a huge difference between the way that something like Titanic handled it almost in a very unclassy way and the way that this movie does it to enhance their character or to, to make their character more interesting. Um, the action sequence, just this whole chase here. It's probably one of the best sequences of the movie because they're using locations in a way. And this is – I haven't read the novel, but this is where I could see you know, where Roderick Thorpe explained how he came up with the idea of this book was because he saw the Towering Inferno and then had this dream. Because I've had plenty of dreams. Like I'm sure everybody has dreams where they're being chased by somebody, whether it's a person with a gun or you're just running for your life. And in all those dreams, it's always the locations that I remember. It's like, oh, well, I've got to jump into a duct or I've got to – uh, you know, hide underneath this desk. And this empty building, half of which is under construction, which they filmed this in a real building that was under construction. It was actually a 20th Century Fox office building, essentially. They use so many interesting locations, like having them climb in the ductwork or hang in the elevator shaft. That just, it, it, it makes the sequence more memorable than if it was your typical gunshots everywhere things exploding and punches being thrown um i already mentioned how about uh as a kid how much it really got me 
that he would use the strap of his gun to rappel down to try to grab the 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 vent shaft and uh you know just the excitement as well of having him trapped in there when they know he's in there and they're firing all the bullets and, and he's just waiting for Carl to come and Carl's like you know sort of pushing up on the top of the vent work there's so much suspense in these scenes and i don't know how it holds up 30 years later when i've seen this movie who knows how many times it, it, i i it's too bad John McTiernan's dead because he would be a great guest to have on the show. Well, <laughs> can we, we get, the get him? John McTiernan? Yeah, we can get him. Um, I- I've interviewed John Abel a couple of times. He speaks to the dead. I'll just get him on and, you know, do sort of a, a interview through people. That will work. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Oz Network Medium, a new show yeah. coming to the Oz Network. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, like the balance between John being sarcastic, being stressed out, uh, the fact that he can be freaking out over the, the dispatch operator and then five minutes later literally be on the run for his life and be saying things like, no, I know what a TV dinner feels like. It's just <laughs> – it's amazing how they can have that balance with a character without it feeling unnatural. But it just feels like this is this guy. Um, I did make the note about the football game, especially since it was apparently a college game on – maybe <laughs> – I don't know. I don't live in America, so maybe they have college football games on, on Christmas Eve. Um, but there's also – it says USC, and where is Notre Dame? Uh, France. <laughs> no, I'm Notre Dame University. Is that an East oh. Coast thing? Uh, yeah, I'll Google that. That's what I've got the internet in front of me for. <laughs> okay. The thing that didn't strike me until you mentioned that maybe he just popped this on the VCR, I thought that he just literally turned on a channel and is like, oh, let me improvise so this guy thinks that I'm more invested in the game and there's no danger going on here. And I was more focused on the fact that this was a college game, but you mentioned, like, this is a daytime game. It's nighttime outside. The USC is Southern California. It's Indiana. But they're in California. Okay, so Indiana or California, both of which <laughs> it would be pitch black outside yeah, because exactly. we're in California. Yeah, Al Powell <laughs> is the dumbest cop in the world because he doesn't even recognize this guy is watching an old game. And apparently has 50 bucks on it. Yeah. Although he, not like he could have Googled it, but still. Um, and, uh, yeah, him with the, I love the moment with him and the pregnant wife, you know, just getting the five Twinkies or whatever. Um, Jamie's not really like that, but I'm sure anybody who's had a pregnant wife has had a moment where they just want something crazy. Uh, did, did your mom ever tell you about food cravings that she had with you? Cause I've got a fun story about that. Oh, she probably did, but, um, you know, she had them when she wasn't pregnant anyway, so um, no. <laughs> I, I, don't, I can't remember. Well, I, I just I found this funny because I've had a few moments where Jamie specifically has told me I am craving the chocolate fudge sickles, or she'll be like, I am craving an orange creamsicle. It's usually an ice cream with Jamie, and I have to stop on the way home when I'm actually walking home like an hour uh, in order to get it for her. But um, when my mom was pregnant, one of the things I found was that all the things that she ate a lot of with myself, my brother, and my sister, we would eventually end up liking later on. Like with my mom, she ate a ton of dill pickles with me. And that's probably my favorite food ever. Like I'll eat dill pickle over, over anything. Um, but she had some weird food cravings and this is complete sidebar. Just the Twinkie thing got me thinking. Um, my mom with me ate sauerkraut on raisin toast. Like, you know, I have raisin bread. Yeah. She toasted raisin bread and put sauerkraut on raisin bread. She also once ate, not a full box, but she ate some out of a box of scented Kleenex uh-huh. when she was pregnant with me. What? So she said, 
Yeah, and that that is hands down. I, I dare anybody to find anything that is a weirder pregnant food craving that somebody actually ended up eating. Uh, <laughs> pregnant. Like I, I'm just trying to work that out. How does that even like? What do you just eat the tissue or like? <laughs> this is not who my mom was, but I have seen shows about people who have like these weird things. I'm not gonna say fetish, but like some type of weird psychological thing where they will eat Kleenex or they will eat paper. And this is just the thing that like it's an obsession that they can't get over. Uh, that's not what it was. It was just literally one day my mom had this Kleenex. That was scented, and she thought the smell of it sound, smelt really tasty. So she started eating a couple pieces of Kleenex. And did it taste Which, as good as the? She smell? more than one. It <laughs> tasted as bad as the, you know, uh, an eighty-year-old Twinkie or whatever John has later on. <laughs> but I ate yeah, cat food once just because I was bored. Everybody's eating cat food or dog food. Uh, I dog, dog milk food. What's wrong, what's wrong with you? Milk bones are pretty solid. <laughs> well, like, I don't mind the dry cat food, and it just was very salty. I didn't like it. <laughs> it was too salty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> we've talked about scented Kleenex and eating dog food and cat food. We can't mock Al Powell here with his Twinkie <laughs> obsession. Um, we got anything else to talk about here? Uh, oh, yeah, <laughs> just... <laughs> This is maybe the funniest uh, character in this movie is Harvey, the news anchor. That mm. when Dick, the, the same guy I, we probably recognize from Ghostbusters, he plays the EPA guy. Who, oh, it's been you know, so long since I've seen Ghostbusters, but yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. But um, uh, the guy that he's talking to or when he's trying to ask the, the producer or whatever, you know, give me a news truck because I want to go and I want to get this footage. And then the news anchor is kind of mocking him. The news anchor's name's Harvey. And then Dick, the um, the dick of the movie, <laughs> the, the reporter, <laughs> just points to him and goes, eat it, Harvey. Which, by the way, is like the most lame 80s insult ever. Eat it, Harvey. <laughs> and the look on anchor's face is like a look of rage and he's just and then they're like harvey you're on the air and all of a sudden he turns like in today's story and as soon as the camera's off him he's me like i'm gonna get you for that <laughs> nobody tells me to eat. and of course this guy's gonna have another great moment later on but i love that eat it harvey moment so the 80s went again what a great time uh <laughs> or jerkweeds you told them to eat it yep yep <laughs> better than what you sniff oh wait that was a 90s uh <laughs> Here's another thing, uh, talking about trivia. You know the cinematographer of this movie, Yann DeBont, would later go on to make his directorial yeah. debut with Speed and then Twister, a movie that was one of the first ones we ever covered here. It was, was that the third we covered? Second we covered? Third, yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, good times. Good times. And he, and he did, uh, of course, another one. We did Termi uh, Terminator. Tomb Raider 2, didn't he? Oh, that's right. He did do that. Yeah. Wow. We've done like two of his three movies. <laughs> <laughs> we we did John DeBont month without even knowing. <laughs> maybe speed will be coming soon. May, well, maybe it will be. As <laughs> <laughs> an anniversary. <laughs> anyway, uh, so um, where are we up to? Oh, yes, he's being called Roy. Uh, the the dickweed uh, sergeant <laughs> cop guy shows up to go off at our pal. Uh, we also oh, we have a bit of a scene of... Um, of uh um, um um why am I going blank here on his name um um the hacker guy Theo um nope. hacking through as well 
Uh, and we've got the dickweed sergeant guy going off at our pal. You know, how do you know he's a cop? He could be a bartender. <laughs> I love him too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's all right. Like, you know, he's kind of, he's a dickweed here, but then obviously, you know, he becomes sort of the, the middle one, doesn't he, when Robert Darby shows yeah. up. <laughs> uh, so we've got conflict out there. Then we've got Holly wanting to talk to Hans Gruber. We find out she's basically in charge now because you killed my boss. Uh, wants a sofa for the pregnant woman. Uh, and then... It's kind of like a little bit of a weirdness, like the way she kind of like looks behind and at the photo that's been laid down, and he kind of looks behind as if to think it's a bit suspicious. Yeah. Um, but it's not so okay. Um, and can I just say I love Holly, but the pink like blousing she's wearing, I don't really like that. <laughs> Very eighties. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I don't get it, but um, good for her. What does she? And she gives a James Bond introduction, doesn't she? Uh, you know, Gennaro. Miss Gennaro. Miss Gennaro. <laughs> um, meanwhile, on TV, we've got a terrorist expert um, because it wouldn't be a thing without having a terrorist expert <laughs> Do talking about... Do you remember about... the name of his book? Isn't it like terrorism? Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> I even hostage terrorist. Terrorist hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's what they were going to call the Bible. It was going to be called The Bible, Bible, The. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, Jerkweed TV reporter is uh, outside the uh, plaza. This is where he gives his line of, you know, Los Angeles has joined the uh, the ongoing list of cities with terrorism. And we see Argyle in the taxi. Uh, he's uh, finally realised what's going on. He's just drinking through the minibar. Why doesn't he just leave at this point? Like, why is he still there? <laughs> um, and he turns on the radio to hear everything uh happening there um john mcclain uh sorry not john mcclain uh the dickweed police guy at the front uh, tells al that he's sending everyone in uh all the cops are going uh inside john mcclain calls him up on the radio and he's basically like this is the wrong idea uh can i just say the cops run really weird as they run towards the building i don't know if you- <laughs> saw that but it's just the way he's going on there so Gruber gets all his uh, henchmen to be prepared we've got uh, our Japanese Godzilla henchman steals a Hershey chocolate bar because why not Uh, they put a bunch of uh, lights up on the building as they go in to do it they send in a tank because the LAPD have a tank of course they do Uh, (laughs) and they start shooting a bunch of uh, I guess what rocket launchers down at the tank before Bruce Willis in watching all of this through the window uh, he's got one of the detonating a bit detonating a detonator thing still attaches it to a computer screen drops it down the elevator shaft and we have a massive explosion which is awesome um, and good to see that uh, John McClane knows how to make a computer bomb and uh, I do like the TV guy he's basically like tell me you got that I got that. <laughs> uh, and then he's like, eat your head out. What is he like? Eat your heart out, Channel 5. <laughs> like, for such a dick of a character, I just do kind of like the way she's like, eat your heart out, Channel 5. She's great. Um, the, the dick. Somebody didn't say, eat it, Channel 5. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you for that. Uh, the, the dick cop guy goes off at uh, John McClane over the radio. He's like, I'm the deputy in charge of this operation. So what is he calling like, you little asshole? And it's kind of like, I'm not the one down there who's getting butt-fucked on TV. <laughs> and then Argyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it's so funny. Uh, but like, what's so good about like the little uh, relationship again between John McClane and uh, Al Pal is just you know <laughs> the moral support that Al Pal gives him. Like, you hang in there, okay? Um, yeah, it's so nice. Uh, just going back and forth there. Um, and this is when Ellis comes into play because he wants to negotiate with terrorisms. Because why not? <laughs> what does he say? Like Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight. <laughs> <laughs> booby, Booby, or Bolt, whatever that line is that he says. Uh, it's like you use a gun, I use a fountain pen. Okay, I'm gonna admit this is a bit where you kind of like, okay, Ellis, Al Ballin, you're a bit of a dick, but like you know. <laughs> You go to town. Uh, he's trying to negotiate uh, with him. Meanwhile, um, John McClane eats an 80-year-old Twinkie, as you said. Um, he's having a bit of a conversation uh, with them down on the ground. And what does he say? Like, what's in these Twinkies? And Pal's <laughs> just kind of like, oh, you know, sugar. Uh, Yellow dye number five. Killer hydrogenated dye. oil. <laughs> I do like the way he says that. Uh, through all of this, we realise that Ellis has told him who he is, uh, who he's told Gruber who he is, because uh, he comes across the radio and calls him uh, John McLean. Um, and this is when Ellis basically, you think he's going to admit, I always think he does admit that he's uh, Holly's husband, but uh, he says, oh, we're old friends. He was my guest at the Christmas party. Yeah. You know, tell them where the detonators are or they'll kill your old friend. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. And I do, I do like the way that kind of like Ellis does that little motion with his finger, the way he like points at Groover. He's kind of like, yeah, I've got him now. <laughs> like, so they're not really going to kill me. Yeah, man. Um, <laughs> give, gives him a glass of Coke because, yeah. you know, <laughs> the cola wars. He has enough wars already. And, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, the cola wars in the 80s were so big. Like, oh, you know, all the people are about to die. I drank Coke, not Pepsi. Um,. <laughs> And eventually, poor old uh, Ellis gets shot in the head because uh, John McClane doesn't tell him where the detonators are. Uh, what does he say? Like, go fuck yourself, Hans, or something like that to him on the uh, the thing. Um, we have got... Um, where am I up to here? So he's... This is when the cops then going off at our pal saying that your guy got someone else up there killed. Our pal stands up for himself because we love him and he's great. Um, and, oh, this is where Hans Gruber wants to talk to them and is basically like, I want you to uh, release uh, terrorists around the world, including we've got ones in Northern Ireland. We've got Quebec Freedom Fighters wanting yes. to be released in Canada. Uh, and some Sri Lankan uh, people released. And what is great about this is kind of Hans Gruber's just using this as an absolute ploy so that they have no idea what he's doing inside and it will keep them distracted that they're obviously going to have to get the FBI in, which is, uh, you know, what we are going to find out soon is his kind of his ultimate plan because he's using them to help break into it, which, again, it's, it's well written that they go to this length to essentially, you know, go that way to break into a vault. I think it's really clever. And through all of this, we meet Robert Darby for the first time. Yes. Uh, who comes in. Is it Agent Johnson and Johnson? Is that who they are? Yeah. No relation, um, though. I do love... <laughs> oh, really? I thought they were brothers. Um, <laughs> I do like the way they kind of play up on that. Like, I like the uh, the line later on where Robert Darby's on the phone. Agent Johnson. No, the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what does the person say on the other line of that? Like, the black one? Like, no, the other one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he can't be racist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, and I also like the line sort of throughout this year, which I think I've uh, skipped over, where Hans Gruber's talking to Theo and he's kind of like, it's Christmas, it's time for miracles, when uh, Theo's basically saying, like, oh, we're going to need a miracle to get into this vault. Um, so, yeah, and there's also a line with the hostage guy on TV where the dick reporter is basically like, oh, Helsinki in Sweden. No, Finland. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> like, all the journalists are complete idiots in this movie, too. Uh, always. We're always idiots in TV shows and movies. <laughs> um, so, yes, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there just as the Johnsons show up uh, just before Hans Gruber and uh, John McClane meet. Uh, I like the, um, you talk about how Holly isn't a damsel in distress in this movie. I mean, if anything, she's ballsier than John. I mean, not in terms of, like, physicality, but John's, you know, kind of tentative, you know, depending on who he's talking. I mean, he's he has no problem throwing insults around, but she walks right up to this lead terrorist. And uh, when, you know, she's saying, I have a couple of requests from the other hostages, and then, uh, Han's like, what idiot put you in charge? She goes, you did when you shot my boss. Like, <laughs> she's she's really ballsy. And the the coolest thing about this is that in the Die Hard series, by the time you get to part four and part five, you're using the kids. So the daughter appears in part four. And you would think that she was playing more of like, this is John McClane's daughter. But she basically plays Holly. You know, it, There's so many things that they use with, with the daughter Lucy in Live Free or Die Hard where you're like, that's totally the way Hollywood do this, you know? And when they did five, you know, they used Jai Courtney. So you knew that John McClane Jr. was going to be terrible. Um, but... <laughs> I was about to say, they ran out of ideas if Jai Courtney's involved. <laughs> Jai <so>. Courtney. <laughs> um, but another nod to Live... Well, two nods to Live for Your Die Hard, because Live for Your Die Hard, uh, Lucy, the daughter, was just amazing. And the actress who played her, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, started Scott Pilgrim, maybe one of my favorite movies of all time. Also the TV show Fargo. Uh... And then also the other connection is this Johnson and Johnson thing with the FBI agents. They recall to that in Live Free or Die Hard. It's not like there's another Johnson and Johnson, but when he meets a guy from the FBI or whatever agency it is, he says, my name's Agent Johnson. And John kind of looks at him like, uh, and he's like, what? And he goes, no, nothing. Don't worry. <laughs> so they, they, they play up on the whole Johnson hatred thing later on. Um, but I also like when she's like, you know, uh, we uh, have a pregnant lady. Can we move her a couch? And Hans is actually quite understanding. He's like, no, but I'll have a couch brought out to you, which I just would have loved if Holly was like, you know, we got a pregnant woman out there who's a little bit hungover. She wants to lie down. <laughs> that would have made it a little bit better, more 80s. Uh, and then unless you want it to get really messy out there, you better start bringing people to the groups in the bathroom. And he's like, okay, fine. I get it. Um, so after John shoots up the, the car or whatever, and Al and his uh, Dwayne T. Robinson, his, <laughs> as you say, police dickweed or whatever, uh, th- this is like maximum buffoonery here. Because this guy who, as you said, kind of becomes the middle character later on, there's just no common sense to him whatsoever here at all. Because he's basically saying, oh, we're going to send in the SWAT team. And then... He's like, well, you know, what about uh, John McClane? He goes, what about the terrorists? And he goes, there's probably not terrorists in there. And, and then he's like, well, what about the body that hit my car? It was probably a depressed stockbroker. <laughs> okay, so if you believe that this is just a crank call and a depressed stockbroker, why are you sitting in a tank? <laughs> it literally makes no sense. He's trying to make excuses saying there's no terrorists. Send in the SWAT team. Um, you mentioned how funny the guys run. They actually, I don't know if you caught this, 
But I think that was kind of intentional because there's one of the SWAT team guys who's running through the bushes and he pricks his finger on a bush uh, and he yeah, actually yeah. was like, ow! And he like kisses his finger like he got a boo boo. <laughs> there's little subtle things of humor in here. And it also, at the same time, the, uh, the, the Godzilla, uh, the guy who's in Godzilla we mentioned, who also, in another one of my childhood favorite movies, he played Genghis Khan, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, the, the Asian terrorist here or thief. Uh, when he's just taking up his position, he's got his gun and he's standing behind like some type of concession stand and he just opens it up. Like he puts his gun, opens it up and starts eating a chocolate bar while he's waiting. (laughs) There's like these little subtle bits of humor that kind of like John's one liner should not work or should break the flow of the movie. And it doesn't. Uh, and I love when they're, they're blasting it with the, um, uh, the rocket launcher here and, uh, uh, this was probably one of those lines that really got on my nerves when I was a kid, and now I just love it when Theo's like, the quarterback is toast! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do wonder, there's a lot of interrupting on the radio in this movie. Like, when John's calling into the dispatch, when Hans and John are having conversations, when Ellis is on the line later, people are literally in mid-conversation, but like, isn't the way walkie-talkie is supposed to work that unless you release your button, the other person can't communicate? Mm, I think so, yeah. It's not like they're on cell phones. They're pressing buttons here, but like everybody just interrupts each other on walkie-talkies, which should not work. Uh, oh, I also love the um, uh, the moment here when uh, they're they're shooting the lights and uh, the, the sergeant or whatever, uh, Dickweed, <laughs> he's like, what's going on? And Al's just like, they're shooting at the lights. And then Dwayne's like looking around. He's got this panic look on his face. Like, I think they're going for the lights. <laughs> <laughs> You do know who this guy is, right? The actor. Um, Robinson, recognize him from a million things. Paul, Paul Gleason is his name. Now, you ready for this? You ready for this? He played Jeremit in Star Wars ah, Battle yes! for Endor. <laughs> <laughs> Ewoks Battle for Endor, sorry. He's Jeremit. He's also the principal in the Breakfast Club. He is. He's dead now, wow. but... <laughs> Everybody in this movie's dead, apparently. Um... I mean, we may as well just run down some of the other things here, but like, you know, uh, Reginald Vell Johnson, who plays um, uh, Al Powell in this movie, of course, he was the, the dad in the Family Matters TV show, which was more well-known for Urkel. Um, and uh, everything, isn't he? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, and uh, who else do we have here? Uh, William Atherton, as I mentioned, who plays the reporter. He was uh, the, the, the guy in Ghostbusters. Uh, Clarence Gilliard, who plays Theo. Uh, what has he done here? Let's just run through everybody's filmography. He was on Matlock. Ah. <laughs> and Walker, Texas Ranger. This guy ah. had quite the career. Uh, and also, the other, not, uh, I mentioned Necros, who uh, was the, the brother who died, Tony. But his brother, Carl, the long-haired uh, German other Fabio guy who has the major fight scene later, the last surviving one of them, uh, he was in a movie called The Money Pit with Tom Hanks. Did you ever see that? No, I haven't. Okay, it's a great movie with uh, Tom Hanks where they buy this house that looks like, well, this is an amazing mansion. And then as soon as they move in, like everything starts to go wrong with this house. It's like one of the most ridiculous comedies of the 80s, but like total underrated comedy. And he plays like such a sleazebag who's trying to steal Tom Hanks' wife. Uh, he's actually a really good actor. And it's funny that when you look through his filmography, I don't know if this is the guy. Yeah, you said this is the guy that died in like 1995. Um, but this guy that plays Carl, I mean, he only appeared in a couple of movies, but every, like the two that I saw him in, 
I thought he was fantastic. So we lost him too soon. Sorry and uh, also the little actor called Robert Darby. I don't know if we've heard of him before. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. let's mention him now because he plays <laughs> one of the Johnson & Johnsons, Robert Darby. Um, I think the episode ended up being – did we end up airing it on the Oz Network as well? Uh, I think we did, yeah. Or a link to it. But uh, on our other show, our James Bond podcast, Double Oz 7, no, we uh, – uh, iTunes and relevant podcast service. That's right. Um, and uh, for our 50th episode – we broke our mold and we actually got a guest on the show and we interviewed Robert Davi, who of course was the main villain in License to Kill, uh, among so many other things. Uh, and we talked about the Goonies and, uh, lots of James Bond stuff. And then of course I had to throw in a question for Die Hard because, um, you know, my childhood favorite movie. <laughs> and it's, I think close to the end of our interview and we got to uh, include a clip on it. If you listen to the end of this episode, at the very if end of this episode, we'll, far. If you do, yeah. If you can stand all the racism and sexism and everything on this. Uh, we'll include the clip of our interview with Robert Davi because when I asked him about Die Hard, he went into this story because he was friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in real life. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was sitting with him at the premiere. And you have to hear it, but the basic thing of it is everything we're saying about these characters, about how these authority figures are just complete imbeciles. He tells the story of Arnold Schwarzenegger watching this at the movie premiere with him and actually turned to him and saying, what are you, you such an idiot? And he does <laughs> maybe the best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression I've ever heard. So it's you can listen to it, Double Law 7, but uh, or otherwise we will include that clip on the end of this episode because you have to hear Robert Davi talking about the premiere of Die Hard and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but yeah, like Johnson & Johnson, they're, they're, every time a new character is introduced, we go from the dispatch supervisor to Dwayne T. Robinson, to Johnson & Johnson. They just get dumber. But the difference with Johnson & Johnson is that they don't care that they're dumb. Like, they're going to have a line coming up later on which just shows they're just insensitive. You know, it's not like they're dumb. But I love, uh, again, something I probably hated when I was younger just because I thought they were so unrealistic, but I love how unrealistic they are now. Uh, and... The main thing to talk about here is the scene with Ellis, and this is that line I, I always loved. Uh, this is him being you know, culturally uh, uh, ignorant when he's trying to get their attention, and uh, he goes, Sprickensy talk, which is just <laughs> one of the best lines ever. Uh, and then Ellis's negotiation, which is so good, uh, just how smarmy he is. Uh, every single line he has, the way that he plays it up as this businessman, the way he calls him Hans Booby, and then just... Alan Rickman's response to him, there's there's ways that Alan Rickman, again, sincerity is kind of the way he plays this. When Ellis is like, you know, I, I get what's going on here. I'm a smart guy. And he starts running down a few things. And uh, Hans goes to him, you're amazing. You figured all this out already. And he's not like being <laughs> condescending. He's actually like, playing along with this thing. He's so smart. And then Ellis is talking about something he saw in 60 Minutes. And then at one point, Hans like, I'm sorry, I must have missed 60 minutes. What's your point? <laughs> and, um, the way that the scene plays with like John panicking, saying, I don't even know this guy, you don't believe him. And Ellis is like, don't say that, we've been friends forever. And then Ellis playing along with it, like thinking, you know, oh, I'm trying to make him think that my life's in jeopardy, not realizing his life really is in jeopardy when he's like, uh, hey, come on, Hans, this, is, uh, this isn't TV, this is radio, put away the gun. And... <laughs> Hans actually kills them. Like, again, there's only two hostages that die in this movie. But the, probably the only moment where Sheriff Robinson or Deputy Sheriff or whatever he is, Robinson, actually is kind of justified 
is when he starts talking about like he just let that guy die. You know, he should have now you can make the argument, well, should he given up the detonators? Like he's giving the terrorists what they want. But John, if he is a police officer, is he actually now responsible for Ellis dying? Like what do you do? Like if this is speed, you shoot the hostage in the leg. You don't let the hostage get shot in the head. So I, I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other, but I think it's one of the few moments of the movie where, you know, it brings a little bit of complexity. It's like, well, should John have actually done something? And Al's argument is, well, then John would be dead too, but they're not even bringing up the elephant in the room, which is, yeah, but he would be giving them their weapon. You know, he, like, it, that's basically... Yeah. There's so many uh, movies in other... Like, the one I'm thinking of straight away is Air Force One, when he's in the thing and they uh, Gary Oldman shoots what he's like, press secretary or whatever it is, and, you know, he only comes out of the cargo hold basically when his wife and that is held hostage. So, yeah. you know, is the President of the United States in Air Force One responsible for the death? Of, well, technically, yes, because, you know, you didn't reveal yourself. So, yeah. And um, when they start making their demands after this... Um, when he mentions all those terrorist groups and he mentions the Liberté de Québec, <laughs> which I had to research. I See, I wasn't sure how this would be perceived outside of Canada. People would be like, Canadians don't have terrorists. But um, <laughs> when he said Quebec, I actually, the first thing I thought of is that growing up, you know, even by the time of, say, the mid-90s, there was still like a very strong separatist movement and there were votes. Like I remember being one of the biggest moments of my childhood growing up. And I think it was like, they did one in maybe 93 and another one in 95, 96, where it was like nationally televised because Quebec had a vote where like everybody got – it was a referendum. Do we want to separate from Canada and be our own country? And it was like every single networking – the way you would cover an election, it was covered here. So it's not like there was violence at the time, although there is a lot of that. Like um, there are people who are kind of extremists. I never really saw a lot of that, but when I read up on what this Liberté de Quebec was, I guess in the 60s and 70s, it was a legitimate terrorist organization where they were committing acts of terror across Canada uh, in the name of seceding from Canada as you know, a separatist group of Quebec. So uh, that's kind of cool. And then just when he mentions the Asian Dawn and Carl, they're kind of mouse like, Asian Dawn? And he's like, I read about it in Time magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Like, they know nothing about what they're doing here. They're literally just stalling for time, which is what makes them so smart as villains. Because we've known kind of from the beginning, this is what I was mentioning earlier on, we've known from the beginning these, they're they're not ad- admitting to being terrorists. They're saying, who said we were terrorists? But then it gets more complex because you realize they're playing terrorists. And we're going to get to the FBI thing coming up here in a second. Uh, but they, I didn't even realize how many times they dropped that seed throughout the movie like, when they're trying to prevent the police from coming, you wonder why. But Alan Rickman actually says at one point in the movie, and he says, we need the police to be here, but not yet. Right now, we can't have them here. And you realize the reason why is because this entire plan of, is about getting the power shut off to the building that we're going to get to. But when they've been trying to turn the police away earlier on, Alan Rickman actually addresses that. Like, Hans addresses it to the other henchmen and says... We're not ready for them yet. So this was always part of his plan. And so this movie tells you from the beginning, we're not terrorists, but then they play up on this terrorist thing to everybody on the outside and they sort of start to unveil their plot and you realize how smart they really are, especially in comparison to like a dickweed like Dwayne T. Robinson. <laughs> just just backing up a little bit, I'm intrigued, Colin. Um, what is a Canadian terrorist attack? Is that like not refilling <laughs> the maple syrup after you leave or 
not saying exactly. sorry after you bump into someone down the street? Like, is that considered a Canadian terrorist attack? We say serves you right instead of sorry. <laughs> instead of uh, Akbar, you're kind of like, oh, hey! <laughs> I don't know what the hell that well, was. I mean, and again, this kind of shocked me because we don't see, we've had a couple of incidents. There was one after 9-11 where there was, um, uh, a terrorist attack that was kind of, it was a, there was a chase through like subways in Toronto or something like that, uh, that, that like people were witness to where there was an attempted terrorist attack in Toronto after 9-11. Uh, and then, of course, there was the one on the Parliament building that most people probably mm. know about. But, like, just look at this Liberté de Quebec group. Uh, there was a bombing of the Montreal Stock Exchange. Uh, there was a kidnapping of a British trade commissioner. Like, I guess these were massive stories at the time, you know, during the 60s and 70s. And it, there probably was real fear about this group, which makes more sense now for me, somebody who having grown up more in the 90s, when there was this separatist movement, this legitimate separatist movement is separate from Quebec, and a lot of people in non-French-speaking provinces, like even here in Manitoba, would look at them and be like, well, these people are dangerous. And I'm like, but they're just politicians. But of course, these people are remembering these actual terrorist attacks from decades earlier. Can we establish, though, that there is a line we're going to get soon where he speaks to Hans Gruber and he's like, we've organized their release, they'll be released soon. So basically, they are still freed at the end of this movie, are they not? Or is he only just saying that to appease Hans Gruber's, you know, happiness? Yeah, I think they're just saying that to him. Because that would be that would have been a really cool setup for like a sequel. That you know, like passing out. Yeah, like they well, they. Yeah. Do you remember the second part? Actually, deals with that a little bit more, and we do start to see. I guess one of their demands is to release these other uh, leaders, and they start to release some of them throughout the course of Die Hard too. So we, get, I guess they they didn't take them seriously in this one, but in the second one, they're like, oh, we got to do it now. Well, the third one I remember is Hans Gruber's brother, isn't it? Jeremy Irons yeah. is, uh, you know, uh, Scar and Alfred and... Yeah. And then the fourth kids. one's a hacker. Yeah, and then the fifth one is Jai Courtney. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the real man the, who died hard. <laughs> the biggest villain Die Hard has ever seen. <laughs> hey, yeah, Jai Courtney. <laughs> John McClane has faced the Gruber brothers. <laughs> now he faces his biggest test, an Australian actor that no one gives a shit about, that keeps trying to make it famous, but no one cares. The greatest nemesis John McClane has ever faced, the lack of charisma of Jai Courtney. <laughs> He's kind of like a Hemsworth, but not. <laughs> He's from the same country as Hugh Jackman. But who gives a shit? Because <laughs> he's Jai Courtney. No one <laughs> likes him, not even his own mother. Uh. Can we just can we get the next Jai Courtney movie? And you know how sometimes these movies will have like from the man who brought you, and can we just have it be from the man who killed Terminator and Die Hard? <laughs> Come, <laughs> starring in the new Marvel movie. Because now finally, <laughs> the Marvel Cinematic Universe is about to die. Because Jai Courtney <laughs> is in it. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's secretly what they do. Like these filmmakers, they they didn't want to make another Die Hard. Bruce Willis didn't want to be in it. None of them wanted to be in it. So they've just gone. I know how we can get out of this for a sixth one. Cast Jai Courtney. <laughs> just like you know, go, hey guys, it's 20th Century Fox. I know who should play my son. Jai Courtney. <laughs> and all the guys, 20th Century Fox. Wait a minute. You're right! 
Bruce Willis was contracted for six more Die Hard movies. He's like, oh, I can't be doing this much longer. How am I going to get out of this? Tell them you really want Jai Courtney as your time. I'll only do it if Jai Courtney's my son. <laughs> See, and somehow Arnold Schwarzenegger just has brain lapses because he did want to do Terminator 5, but now he's coming back for number six. Can we get Jai Courtney again? We've already tried that, Arnold. We've got Lyndall Hamilton on board. Oh, the movie actually going to be good? <laughs> Oh, goodness. All right. Uh, so, um, we now have, uh, Hans Gruber is checking out, uh, I guess some corridors and John McClane finds him. And this is when he pretends to be a hostage and Alan Rickman puts on an American accent. <laughs> oh, God, no. Please don't kill me. <laughs> well, maybe it's his German accent. Like, yes. Maybe- <laughs> <laughs> That's the first accent in the movie. He's actually finally now working out how to do the uh, the German accent, but it's it's I, I do like this sequence here where he's kind of like playing up to the fact he's a terrorist, and you kind of see that. Like, is it meant to be implied that John McClane believes him the whole time? Because I kind of get a feeling that he's still a bit skeptical of him. Um, well, I'd say fifty fifty because I, I always viewed this scene differently, even though I know the bit's going to come up with the bullets. Uh, until I watched it this time when I realized he intentionally gave him a gun with no bullets. But but then you could you could say to just do that because he doesn't trust this guy. But you look at it from John's point of view, I mean, he's been seeing all these guys who look like Fabio, who don't look like your typical terrorists. So he probably would be like, this. let me just be on the safe side. I think he's kind of somewhere in the middle. And he kind of looks like Al Ballin with, like, um, you know, lighter hair. <laughs> anybody, so. with a, anybody with a beard is Al Borland to you. <laughs> Wait, you have a beard. You look like Al Borland. <laughs> oh, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, I think. <laughs> Take that as a compliment. What? What? Didn't he used to host Family Feud before Steve Harvey? Yes. Was that him? Yeah. Yeah. Al Borland's Family Feud. <laughs> What's his name? Richard? Isn't it Richard something? Richard Garn. Richard Garn. Yep. Okay. I thought so. Uh, so yes, uh, plays along with a little bit, pretends to be a hostage. He smokes. He uh, calls himself... Bill Clay, because he sees the name directory, which is pretty clever. Um, John McClane gives him a gun, but as you said, the gun ends up being empty. Um, we want to give him the detonator, so we kind of find out pretty quickly that, uh, you know, he's uh, only playing up to it. And we get into uh, another fight sequence here uh, as a uh, sort of a chasing after McClane. Uh, and then we go into the, uh, the office building and kind of just, uh, there's so many little subtle little things that happen here because like just the bit when, um, Hans Gruber sort of like falls down and like realizes he's got a gun in his head. The first thing he kind of sees is the fact that he's got no shoes on. So then when mm-hmm. we've kind of got this big shootout scene when, uh, you know, they're hiding behind all the desks and he's like, shoot the glass. So this is kind of like, you know, just subtle little things where you just, it's one glance. All it takes is what is like one second of screen time. And then the next minute it's kind of like, let's come up with this genius plan to smash all the glass on the ground so that he's going to have to walk barefoot all over this glass. So yeah, just a, one tiny little moment, which just makes so, uh, you know, sense the way he's kind of going along with it there and everything. It's great. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, uh, was it Mission Impossible 2 when they're in the building in Sydney and they're kind of, you know, yeah. shooting him? Not, not quite as much slow yeah. motion, uh, going on, but, uh, and this, and they use those like flashbang things that kind of look like hockey pucks. 
um, the way they kind of do that. So they, they throw that at John McClane. He does a runner to get out of there, but he leaves behind the detonators. So, um, that's kind of going to be a bit of uh, an important thing moving forward as well. Uh, meanwhile, our jerkwad, uh, TV reporter guy, uh, finds out from one of his assistants that she's got all the details on John McClane, his family and everything along those lines from back in New York. So, oh, what asshole TV people doing their research, wanting to put it- stuff on TV because people want to care about it. These are animals of this movie. Now I'm telling you, Colin, animals. Did you recognize the, the production assistant there? She did look familiar, but, um, who yeah, is she? well, it- it's it's not like she's famous or anything, but I know you're a big fan, especially, you know, Bill Paxton and everything. But she played Bill Paxton's wife in Apollo 13, the oh, pregnant wife oh, of Apollo 13. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, now that you say that, yep, I actually watched Apollo 13 a few weeks ago just because oh, nice. I had been begging to do it since we talked about yeah. Man in the Moon and I wanted to watch a well, First Man, whatever the fuck that piece of shit was called. Uh, but yeah. I, <laughs> which didn't get nominated for, like, basically no Golden Globes except for the, the woman. Like I was a bit surprised. Point, yeah. Yeah, but he I was absolutely got nominated for best drama, and everyone I thought hated that movie. So mm. you know, go figure. Um, so yeah, <laughs> you what? I didn't hate the movie, but I got real issues with that movie. Oh. We'll get to it in history month. Uh, coming soon in 2019. <laughs> um, so we've got, uh, meanwhile, one of the angry henchmen kind of comes down, and that's Carl, isn't it? Smashing up a bar or something like that, and Holly's all like, he's alive! And the pregnant woman laying on the ground. Is the pregnant woman the sister from Back to the Future? N- no. <laughs> she, Are you she saying looks... that because she's pregnant and you think that looks like fat, or? No, 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 like, Marty's sister, in like the, you oh. know, she looks like her. Um, um, I highly doubt it just because I think these movies came out so close together and there's obviously a big, I'm not saying the sister was, she, she's obviously much heavier. Cause I remember even in <laughs> back two, she, she was much heavier. Put on weight, Colin, people eat stuff. Like, and then lost it for Die Hard and put it on a year later for back to the future too. Wendy Joe we- Sperb, excuse me, is the name of the sister <laughs> in back to the future. <laughs> I'm joking. Just Regurgitated her name. Um, no, you're right. She isn't. No, it's not the same person. So who is the, um, who is the lady? Because uh, what's the character's name? Pregnant woman. Maybe. <laughs> what's the name? I, I no. I was just saying maybe it is pregnant woman. I don't know. I, uh, let's see. Pregnant woman. <laughs> Tired. Uh, Ginny. Uh, good old Ginny. Do we like Ginny? Is that oh, a Ginny, real okay. name or character? The character name, played by Dustin Taylor. Is that a woman or a man? Dustin. Was, oh, okay. Oh, she, she was, was in, in she, Yeah, she hasn't been in anything since 1992. There was a second <laughs> movie. Uh, no, sorry, her first this movie. The, waitress in an episode of Beauty and the Beast, the live-action yes. series with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman. What a, what a great show that was. Um, <laughs> it's actually her only movie, because outside of TV movies... Um, oh, can we please do the TV movie in my daughter's name so that we can talk about her playing the role of nurse? No um, joke. Doing TV movie month could be pretty fun one day. Well, it depends on the TV movies. <laughs> uh, in my daughter's name. Um, starts off with the uh, line here in IMDb. Laura Ellis's daughter is raped and murdered by Peter Lipton. Oh, it's a happy movie then. 
Uh, can't wait to do that one. Anyway, <laughs> no, it is not Linda McFly, Ben. Moving on. <laughs> they all look the same. Uh, <laughs> uh, we see John McClane drag himself uh, out of the door, leaving a massive trail of blood. Uh, his feet are all completely cut out. He's ripping glass out of his feet. It's a little bit cringeworthy. Um, and he uh, has a bit of a chat with our power. We also have uh, Theo going through the electromagnetic seal of the lock. And this is, I think, where we find out for the first time with the FBI showing up now that they're going to be switching off the power, is it not? Um, but he's having a chat. Uh, John McClane's chatting with our power. And we find out that um, he shot a kid. Uh, so he never wants to pull his gun out. It's a bit dark this moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You ever make a mistake? Yeah, I shot a kid. <laughs> he had a ray gun. I thought it looked real. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, my question was, was he black? Well, does it matter if a black person shoots a black person? That's kind of, you know, don't it's need just... to race into that, Colin. <laughs> no, but it, it, in all honesty, we talk about how movies change in 2018. You have a movie now where you have yeah. a kid accidentally getting shot because he had a toy gun, and you're going to be asking, was he black? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have the cops like Robert Darby, the Johnsons, uh, telling a guy to cut the power, otherwise they're going to lose a job. I do love the fact that our pal's cop car is still, like, dangling over the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're using the radio from that car for the whole movie. <laughs> yes. Uh, Robert Darby, is this a bit where he's like, we are the FBI, like, you know, oh, you tell him. Uh, and then we find out that he's going to have to cut off 10 city blocks worth of power. We better call the mayor! Uh, <laughs> you know, the mayor needs to be called about this. Uh, is it the same mayor from Back to the Future? <laughs> or the mayor um, from Ghostbusters. Who knows? The mayor's always the same mayor and everything. Uh, as the power gets cut, o- uh, cut off, the doors to the vault finally open. We get Ode to Joy playing. It's great. Ode to Joy is like the first thing I ever learned how to play on the piano. And the only thing I learned really? how to play on the piano, basically. Uh, so they're going through it. They're stealing everything. They find the Barabons. They have this great, like, Theo's laugh that he does when he sees them. It's so cool. Uh, this is where, uh, Robert Darby has his phone. This is Asian Johnson. No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to know what he said about that one. And the size of the, like, the cell phone radio thing that he's got as well. Um, and this is where, is this where Hans Gruber wants to speak to the FBI or is it John McClane wants to speak to the FBI? I've written, I wish to speak to the FBI. Why have I written that? Colin, what am I doing? Uh, that sounds like a Hans line, but I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, who knows? They want to. Uh, this is where John McClane is shirtless. This, what does Jamie think of shirtless Bruce Willis? Um, she didn't watch this one with me. Uh, Jamie actually, she likes Die Hard, but uh, you know, she, she's kind of the opinion it's not a Christmas movie. But there have been other Bruce Willis movies she's seen where she's like, he's a pretty handsome guy, and that's another one where I'm like, really? But I guess again, if you look at the era, you know, he's coming off of Moonlighting, which was more of a romantic comedy TV show, and was probably. You know, this was probably considered, let's get the women in there. Let's have Bruce Willis with his shirt off. And he's kind of like that Pierce Brosnan shirtless, though, isn't he? A bit of chest hair. Yeah. You know, he doesn't yeah. have a six-pack. See, this is a thing that kind of annoys me. Like, you know, all you women out there want your men with their ripped muscles and your six-packs and your Chris Hemsworths and all that sort of stuff. Like, good on them, all right? But this is my argument. Like, you don't need little lines on your stomach and that sort of stuff. A bit of chest hair, like, you yeah. know, a bit of a flat. Like, that's all you need. Look at Pierce Brosnan, all right? Like, that's a you man, know, right? Not Daniel ben, Craig. 
Like, good on ben you. And I want, ben and I want some Pierce Brosnan chestless <laughs> hair, <laughs> hair scenes. Yeah. Let's do you know, my, my ideal, shirtless month. My ideal shirtless man is Bruce Willis and Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> yeah. What's their, what's their Kevin Bacon number, Colin? Like, Bruce Willis and <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. They've been well, in a Bruce movie. Willis... Bruce Willis and the wife of Bill Paxton from Apollo 13. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Coming soon to the Oz Network. Wife of, of Bill Paxton in Apollo 13 month. <laughs> it takes very long. Um, <laughs> but uh, shirtless John McClane is on the uh, the radio telling our pal that his wife, tell her that I love her, should have been there more. And, you know, we get the, the classic line, you can get out of this and tell her yourself. <laughs> I love those sort of lines. Uh, the TV guy has gone around to the house and is basically storming his way in to speak to the kids. And is like, oh, call INS, I'll deport you. <laughs> Let me talk to the kids. <laughs> okay, we're not all like that, people. Like, <laughs> Ben is, uh, not all. Yeah, just, you know, not all of them. Uh, John McClane's on the roof now. He's limping with his uh, feet. Uh, and then, uh, we've got the helicopter with the FBI. Is this where the bit where the, um, the guy, Robert Darby and that are basically like, oh, we'll take out some hostages and about 20 to 25% of the hostages, uh, no, take out the terrorists and 20 to 25% of the hostages. Oh, I can live with that. Yeah. (laughs) That is a bit of a dickweed thing to say. (laughs) Uh, And through all of this, we should mention that, uh, I guess their plan is if the reason why, uh, John McClane has worked out why Hans Gruber was up there when he caught him, because he was checking on the detonators and that they're going to essentially blow the top off this building. Um, and it's going to be that they're going to kill all the hostages, isn't it? And kill everyone involved at the same time. So it seems like they're dead so they can get away with it. So the hostages are all up on the roof here. Uh, we've got Carl and, um, and John McClane are getting into a fight here and, uh, the hostages, uh, are still all up on the roof. And then this is where Hans Gruber too realizes that Holly is the wife of, uh, mm-hmm. John McClane as well. Looks at the photo, realizes that, um, John McClane kills, uh, Carl. He goes up to the roof and is basically telling the hostages, like, you know, this roof is going to blow, get down, get down. And none of them are listening to him. So he just starts firing. Like, yeah. I love this. It's like, <laughs> listen to me. <laughs> That's just like, these poor hostages have been through it all. And now the one guy who is there rescuing him is threatening him with an automatic weapon. Um, and of course, this Holy's crazy husband's trying to kill us. (laughs) This all leads the FBI to think that he is a terrorist. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's, like, upset with them, too. He's like, I'm on your side. It's like, they just saw a man firing a machine gun in the air. Surrounded by hostages. The one time the FBI are actually probably not doing something stupid in this movie. They're like, (laughs) guy on the roof with a gun. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, So to get out of this mess, why does John McClane not run inside the building? Like, why does he feel the need to get a fire hose and jump off the building? All the hostages have just run inside. Like, is this because he's trapped in a corner and he can't? Like, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I have to watch it more closely to figure it out. He ties a fire hose on his uh, leg and gets ready to jump over the thing. I do like the line when he's kind of like, I'll never go up another tall building again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he he then gets ready to jump off the building. This is when Hans Gruber sets off the uh, 
bomb. We get a huge explosion on top of the roof, which uh, takes out poor old Robert Darby. The Johnsons are done. Uh, and as uh, Bruce Willis falls in, he gets through a window and he's starting to get dragged off the roof by uh, the uh, fire court as well. So, uh, yeah, great thing. I might just go through to the end here because, you know, you're going to talk mm. about it, but this as well. Um, Argyle down in the bottom of the car park. He's, uh, seeing that, uh, out of the, the truck he saw go in before that, uh, there's, he's trying to escape in an ambulance. Uh, and he's seeing Theo, uh, sneak out with an ambulance. He's going to ram him in a minute and punch him. It's kind of a cool little scene. Uh, and then I guess the big conclusion scene here though, with John McClane comes in with a machine gun, pointing it at, uh, Hans Gruber, who's got a gun to Holly's head. Uh, Holly's going, oh, you're looking pretty sexy, all, uh, covered in sweat and blood and shirtless, you know, like even though she's got a gun to her head. Uh, and not even needing a six pack, cause you're a not even man. Exactly. Uh, he's taped a gun to his back with Christmas tape. I do like that bit. And then, even with Hans Gruber, the way he says it's like, what did you say to me before? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> and then the way they kind of just have this moment where they're just laughing at each other. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, and he pulls up the gun from the back. He shoots Gruber, shoots the other henchman. Um, cause he only had two bullets left. I should have mentioned that before, which is a kind of cool thing that he's only got two, um, bullets left and he uses them. And Gruber falls out the window, grabs Holly. Uh, we think he's going to drag her with her, but, uh, this all ends basically when he's what, attached by a watch? Is this the Rolex that we heard earlier yeah. on as well? He undoes the watch and, uh, he falls down. And I'm sure, I mean, I know you would know this, but I'm sure some of our listeners would know that the, the famous thing I think about this scene, of course, is the, the shocked look on Alan Rickman's face is legit <laughs> because they never yeah. told him in this scene that they were actually going to drop him. And so for this stunt, like, I don't know how many stories up they were, but they actually dropped him in this scene mm-hmm. without telling him. So that, that look on, uh, Alan Rickman's face as he falls is legit. He's like, fuck yeah. you! <laughs> falls down. Is this um, face image associated with this movie? I reckon, yeah. Just that face. Especially now that there's that meme of, uh, you know, it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber falls off yeah. Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, I, w- I would say that. I do like when uh, Al Powell and uh, Sergeant Dick Weed are down the bottom and they're like, I don't think that's one of the hostages. And kind of yeah. just like the the look on Al Powell's face is kind of like, ooh, like somebody's just been kicked in the nuts. Like that's <laughs> legitimately the look on his face. And then we get uh, John McClane and Holly making out because what's sexier than a shirtless man covered in blood and sweat? Bleeding. <laughs> Bleeding Class. all over the place. <laughs> making out. Um, they go back down to the ground and... Oh, if there's one thing, Colin, that 9-11 was missing, it's the romance of a terrorist attack. <laughs> Papers flying everywhere, dust, and all the happiness that's associated with it below. Um, is this, is, are the papers falling down? See, here's a connection to Christmas. Is that not meant yeah. to imply snow? Like it's Christmassy? See? Yeah. Like, come on, there's a connection. Um, they're chatting down there, and... Uh, Holly and that meet uh, our pal, and they have a nice little hug as well. And through all of this, one of the terrorists have survived. He gets his gun and he gets ready to shoot everyone. And our pal shoots him with his gun. Oh, yay. Redemption for our pal. <laughs> he now has a 50% success ratio in shooting 
suspects. And and then later on, you realise that this um, henchman was actually under the age of eighteen. So yeah, um, that was actually yeah. a kid with a toy gun. <laughs> <laughs> Germans just look a lot older. Than they do. Uh, I do love the way Argyle like comes driving out of the gate, and then like Alpha's kind of got his gun. Like, what is this? How come nobody? What, what are the cops doing in two thousand and eighteen? This limo is getting shot at as it drives out after a terrorist attack, and all John McClane is like, no, 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 he's with me. This one's, a- and he only tells Owl, uh, Owl. Yeah. Why did you call him Owl? <laughs> exactly. But like, he basically whispers him, no, no, this one's with me, as if Owl is the only person on the entire Los Angeles police force and the FBI who's thinking, I got to pull a trigger. I think he's telling him because he knows Al's a little bit trigger happy. He has a history with these things. Kevin, Everybody I else. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kid driving a car. Don't do it to you. Uh, and through all of this, our asshole TV reporter comes up to try to interview uh, John McClane and Holly. Holly punches him. Now, okay, just got to defend my own here. Does she know that he interviewed her kids? Like, is that why she's punching him? Because, like, did she see that on the TV? What reason does she have to punch him besides that? Um, Well, A, that's what put her life in jeopardy. (laughs) Because (laughs) when they said, you know, your parents, uh, and then it's like, come home, and he'd see... Because she had pictures of herself and the kids that were still up in her office, and it was the turned-down picture of John. So I guess it's kind of a combination of, hey, you invaded my children's privacy and exploited them, but also you put my life in jeopardy because of this. Um, yeah, okay. And he enough. looks like a dickweed. Yeah, well, he does, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> and then it ends with uh, Argyle putting them in the back of the limo and saying, this is your idea of Christmas, I'm going to be here for New Year. And again, yeah. Christmas movie. He literally ends the movie by saying, this is your idea of Christmas, you know, see? Like, Argyle Doesn't sums like it up. Christmas end the exact same way? Yeah, but like, again, like 20% of White Christmas is Christmas related, 10% of it, this is at least like 30% Christmas related. Oh, Come oh, on, work okay, out the percentages. I am going to be devil's advocate here because as i said in my opinion the three ultimate christmas movies are die hard white christmas and the santa claus i'd put like christmas vacation christmas story home alone in there but like those three are like my three ultimates but i i see the argument for how die hard is not a christmas movie i don't see it as much for white christmas and i think the only difference is and this is me defending die hard as my favorite christmas movie or i guess not defending die hard um Die Hard isn't really a nothing about this movie is about Christmas. And you could say, well, the plot isn't necessarily the plot in White Christmas culminates with Christmas. It's about a Christmas gift to one man. Uh, but at least it's about, as Jamie kind of brought up, it's about the spirit of Christmas, like uh terrorism and saving people's lives. Nothing about the plot of this movie has to do with Christmas. It's a movie that takes place around Christmas. It captures certain things about Christmas really well. It's a great Christmas tradition, but I'm not going to say this is any more or less a Christmas movie than White Christmas. But, you know, Santa Claus, it's secretly just about, like, you know, a custody battle over a son. Like, I mean, does that really give you the spirit of Christmas? No. (laughs) There you go. The majority of Santa Claus takes place before Thanksgiving, and, like, there are other months of the year. I mean, you can make that argument with anything. Like, you know, putting spiders on people. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. Is Home Alone any different than Die Hard? If people want to say Die Hard isn't a Christmas movie, how is Home Alone... Now, I'm kind of playing both sides of the argument here. How is Home Alone more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard? It's literally the exact same thing. It's somebody on their own having to fight against some type of terror or some type of in, you know uh, invader in their personal space, 
and defeating those people and then reuniting with their family at the end. That's literally the only thing that these movies uh, – well, that that is entirely what these two movies have in common, Home Alone and Die Hard. But neither of those things say anything about Christmas. So if Die Hard is not a Christmas movie, Home Alone is not a Christmas movie. All right, coming soon next year to the Oz Network. Uh, movies that aren't Christmas movies, but we say are yeah. months. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Possibly. But I mean, kind of, that's why I hate the whole argument of Die Hard's on a Christmas movie. A Christmas movie is whatever anybody wants it to be, and I use this argument on White Christmas, that the movie, more than anything else, that is considered the ultimate Christmas movie of all time, It's a Wonderful Life, has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. The majority of the movie doesn't take place at Christmas, and you can't even say, like White Christmas, that it at least culminates in something to do with Christmas. The movie just happens to end on Christmas Eve and has one or two Christmas scenes, but otherwise, nothing about the movie is Christmas. So my argument, more than anything, is a Christmas movie is whatever somebody wants it to be. I mean, Gremlins is considered by some to be a Christmas movie. It takes place during Christmas. It's in a very Christmassy-looking village, but the movie is like Die Hard. It's not about Christmas. Lethal Weapon came out one year before Die Hard. Very similar to <clears throat> like innovative movies as far as the action genre goes. Both take place during Christmas. They both end at Christmas. They end with Christmas trees around and Christmas carols being played in the movie. Now, I'm a huge Lethal Weapon fan. Not as big as Die Hard, but I'm a massive Lethal Weapon fan as well. I don't consider Lethal Weapon to be a Christmas movie. But I'm not going to say to somebody else if they say Lethal Weapon is that it's not. I view Die Hard more as a Christmas movie. Maybe part of it because it's a movie I got for Christmas more than once as a present, you know? So... It's it. We kind of started this off of is Die Hard a Christmas movie, and I think one hundred percent it is. Um, but I'll always sort of play that devil's advocate and say I can see people's arguments. It doesn't even. I mean, it ends with Let It Snow. Let's be honest. Let It Snow is considered a Christmas Carol. Nothing about the song Let It Snow has to do with Christmas at all. It just has to do with snow. So both sides, I understand the argument, but for me, this is Christmas. Um, I I just quickly wanted to jump in and say that I, throughout my um, stellar journalism career, uh, one of my newspapers, I was writing for one of the paper's magazines, and they put me in charge of naming three of the best Christmas movies to like, make people go out and watch Christmas movies. So my top three... I didn't put Die Hard. That was my fourth. But, like, my top three were The Santa Claus, Jingle All the Way, and Love Actually, which Love Actually is a movie which is generally shoved around Christmas. But, again, there's an argument there that that's not exactly a Christmas movie. Perfect example because I've been asking to watch that movie. Every time Jamie and I are looking at Netflix and we're trying to find Christmas movies, most of it is, like, you know, straight-to-Netflix garbage or, like, Lifetime movies that just B-movies that are on there. And I keep saying, let's watch Love Actually, and she's like, Love Actually is not a Christmas movie. And I'm like, what? you got to be kidding me, because to me, I see it as a Christmas movie, but the argument can be made it isn't. Did you get a lot of criticism from people who looked at – and again, I love Jingle All the Way. I love Love Actually. I really love The Santa Claus. But I could see a lot of people being like, how do you not include this, 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 and this, yeah. and your list is Jingle All the Way? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of it – uh, I think, yeah, Jingle of the Way was kind of the one. Where, but, like, uh, so many people wrote to me and said, like, what about Die Hard? What about Die Hard? That was probably yeah. the one <laughs> yeah. that I got um, that, you know, like, It's a Wonderful Life and blah, blah, blah. But, like, Miracle on, what is it, 42nd Street or whatever it is. Yeah. 44th Street. But, uh, you know, like, I legitimately, if I could find all the comments I got from it, would have been, where's Die Hard? <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Um, I mean, you've come around, though. I'm hoping if you're rewriting that list, this at least bumps Love Actually. <laughs> 
Uh, well, yeah, probably, I would say. It's been a while since I've seen Love Actually, though. I don't mind Love Actually. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we'll do it next week on the Oz Network. <laughs> Bonus uh, episode! Uh, no, we've got too many to do next year, Colin. Don't, don't get yeah. <laughs> um, um, have okay. you finished, or was I, was I interrupt you? Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, I wasn't sure if you were finished. Ah, oh, so nice of you to ask me for once. I've covered the movie, so we can move into the concluding parts, if you wish. Well, I have not yet talked about any of the stuff that you covered at the end. So. Oh, haven't you? No. Oh, all I, I saw haven't. Oh, fuck. Don't mind me. <laughs> all right, let's quick fire this because Ben's impatient. Uh, <laughs> where do was it? I didn't realize how much you covered until I realized where I have to start on this. So John runs into Bill Clay. <laughs> the movie there. Oh my God, please no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's a subtle thing, but just like. As a kid, I really appreciated, like, John McClane picking up on the strap and uh, another part coming up, you know, when he's bleeding from the feet, how he uses his undershirt wrapped around it. I just love the, the, the clever ways he came up with things where it's like you wouldn't – any regular person would think of these things, but you'd never see it in a movie. Alan Rickman is a really smart villain too, especially in a movie where everybody else is an absolute idiot. Uh, when he puts on that American accent, like it's really smart in two ways. One, he plays the panicky hostage, but when he's asked, what's your name? He says, Bill Clay. He was only looking at that sign when he first started the panicky act. And then he kind of spins around. So it was approximately when John's standing there with a gun, he has approximately five seconds to look at that board, come up with a cousin story, put on an accent, and then spin around and already know what he's going to call himself, but he waits to give the name. And also, the name on the board is Clay, W, which you would imply William. And it's one extra thing that you would think they wouldn't need to include in a movie, but a cop would be looking for details like that. If you say, my name's William Clay, it's maybe believable, but it'll be more believable if you say, my name's Bill Clay, because you're going to officially be listed as W in the directory, but you're referring to yourself by your name. It, it's not going to feel like he just read this on a board. And then the other thing when he's asking him, do you know how to shoot a gun? And he's like, I was on a firing range once. And then he says, you know that game where you shoot balls with red paint? <laughs> like he just sounds like such an amateur describing paintball there. Um, but it's a little detail that a cop would pick up on and be like, well, it's not like, well, I once, you know, was on a fire range. He's like, no, I was, it's a combat range. And then he says paintball, you know, <laughs> just totally makes himself look like an amateur. But then there's also that question of, did John know the whole time? Is that why he gave him the unloaded gun or did he give him the unloaded gun as a precaution? Uh, <clears throat> but when he does turn around, he's like, well, Hans. And then when Hans shoots the gun, just the way that John antagonizes people. And I love that Holly has that moment you mentioned where Carl's destroying things. You know, only John could make somebody that angry. Just the way that he says, oh, Hans, no bullets, like, big baby, <laughs> bullets in the gun. It's basically the way oh, he's booby. treating him. <laughs> no bullets. <laughs> it's such a John McClane thing, and I just I just love the way that he's antagonizing these characters. Um, I'll kind of, well, I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later on, but uh, during the shootout here when they come down to save Hans and... Uh, I never really thought about how funny this would be until you pointed out how bad his accent is, 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 his lack of a German accent, when him and Carl are just across from each other when they're in, like, the computer room, and Hans is saying something to him in German, he's like, no, 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 and Carl's looking at him like, what? He goes, shoot the glass! <laughs> this guy's German is so bad that the German guy has no idea what he's saying unless he speaks in plain English. <laughs> 
Das, ich sag das, ja. Shoot das Glas, ja? I don't understand your German. But just, I never thought that I'm always gonna laugh at that now. The shoot the glass. It's like he doesn't even understand your German. <laughs> there is actually just interrupt quickly. There is a German word that they keep using, which I actually understand. When they keep saying schnell, schnell, that's like quickly, quickly, like hurry. That's a German word. Oh, okay. Know. Yeah. Um, I didn't pick up on that because I don't know German. Uh, I know shoot I did it for the a semester glass. Once. It's the one word I remember from a semester <laughs> worth of German. <laughs> schnell. All that in Schuldigung, which he's like, oh, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Schuldigung. <laughs> Schuldigung. <laughs> translation of sorry. <laughs> Can we get the German dub of Casino Royale? Schuldigung. <laughs> Schuldigung. Uh, I love the bathroom scene where he's picking the glass out of his feet. Uh, and again, as a 10-year-old, this probably should have grossed me out more, but just seeing like an action hero is so broken down. And if this were an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, a Clint Eastwood movie, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone, any, Wesley Snipes, anybody, they'd be doing that and they might be like, Ugh. but like here he's actually like, <laughs> like he's almost sobbing. And uh, and then just the, the, the idea of the episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's just got that feeling of joy around Christmas time. Um, when he has the scene, I'll, I'll kind of uh, combine these two scenes with him and Al. The one where he's asking Al and Al's like, I shot a kid. Here John's playing like Argyle insensitive. It's like, uh, you know, did you divorce? Did she beat you up? Here he's like, what did you do? Shoot a kid? And it's like, I shot a kid. Oh, sorry. I feel like such a kid. <laughs> Uh, but it, it gives like a like you said it's pretty dark. But Al is a character that's just sort of a guy for John to play off of. Like John's a character that's great where he when he talks to himself, but giving him somebody on the outside like that's the only thing keeping this guy sane. And he's dealing with like I said, these dumb characters are just meant to make John so frustrated where he's like ready to explode. So you have to have that one guy's going to calm down because you know his wife's not going to calm down. Like she's going to push on the breaking point more than anybody else. So it's just – it's such a great relationship that him and Al have that I don't even think I realized it even until you said it there. It's like they literally have one scene together in this movie, and it's at the very end, and they don't even really speak in that scene. But the chemistry they have together is incredible, and you know very well. They're not even on the same uh, shooting locations. There is no way if they filmed with you know uh, Reginald Vell Johnson – for two weeks to shoot all of his exterior scenes. So they had Bruce Willis there to read the lines opposite him. So these guys basically have this chemistry blind with each other. And I think that shows more than anything, not the chemistry they have together, but just how good the script is and how good of an actor both of these guys are. Because I highly doubt that they had Bruce Willis in those exterior scenes where he's not in it, or that they had Reginald Vell Johnson there in the bathroom for all these scenes. I mean, it's not even practical for shooting. Like, these guys were probably talking to some uh, some AD offset <laughs> who's reading it, like, monotone. And I mean, it really should give people appreciation for their acting ability. Um, I love, love, love the Hans Gruber reveal of how his whole master plan came together. Because even when he's talking to Theo earlier, and he's like, you know, I hope you have a plan for that seventh lock because I can't break that. And then you have the scene where the FBI comes in here and, uh, you know, the whole back forth thing with. I also like that the, the main guy, the supervisor, saying, we can't do it here. It has to go through downtown. And the other guy's like, I could do it right here. I could do it right now. And they just, I don't, I, I still don't quite understand that scene too, because they still end up calling downtown, but this guy keeps insisting I could do it here. 
So, like, is this guy just an idiot, or uh, like, I don't, maybe he's uh, it, it. If you really think about it, it makes no sense why the one guy who's in the manhole keeps saying, "I could shut the power off right now," but then they have to call downtown and have ten city blocks shut off. Um, you have any theories on that? He just wanted to speak to the mayor. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I, don't know. I, I I meant to cover it earlier on, but the the combined scene with John's breakdown when he, uh, the only point we're really losing here, he is kind of actually crying when he's talking to Al and saying, if I don't make out of this, I want you to tell my wife this, tell her, I'm sorry, tell her I've been a jerk. The way that he delivers that. And also the way these two guys talk back and forth. It's such a guy way of writing this movie and delivering it in a good way. I think one of the things I love about the Rocky movie, and we've never had a chance to talk about Rocky on here, Noah and I, one day, will get around to doing the Rocky movies. I have never seen a Rocky movie in my life. There you go. see it. Uh, um, both Noah and I recommend it highly. But no, if uh, Noah does. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something with the Rocky movies where the relationship between the guys feels very real, where it's like... People kind of have the idea that like, guys are kind of cold. Guys can be like very close and personal like this, but it's always kind of at an arm's length. Like you're never like outright sappy with each other. So here he's trying to hold back and say, just tell her I've been a jerk. And he's like, oh, you tell her yourself though, you know? It's just a very real scene between these two guys. And uh, Bruce Willis, again, for a performance, is just incredible. Um, just to pipe in, I asked Jamie during the, when you were talking about half the movie here, uh, I put myself on. <laughs> And she came in the room and I asked her, I'm like, uh, Bruce Willis shirtless, yes or no? And she's like, she's like, yeah, he's not bad. He's like, if I was single, he showed up my door, I wouldn't turn him down. And then she starts <laughs> to leave the room. She turns around and goes, but Alan Rickman's hotter. And then just walks out. <laughs> <laughs> so we got our vote there. Wow. Uh, the, um, when he goes up on the roof, yeah, the, the, the FBI thing is like 20 to 25% of the hostages. I could deal with that. A little bit over the top, a little bit unrealistic. Uh, I also love the moment where, uh, again, it, it, it's not like uh, it really matters for the movie, but it just kind of makes them kind of cartoony characters when they're riding the helicopter. And the one guy is like, uh, this is just like Saigon. He goes, I was in junior high, dickhead. <laughs> well, that's this isn't Robert Darby even at that point going like, yahoo! Or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> so we know like there's an age gap between these guys. <laughs> uh the um the the fight scene between Carl and John this is like the dirtiest fight scene in the movie and it's kind of like yeah the showdown with Hans is going to come later on but like Carl is the muscle of this movie so this is like the head henchman this is kind of like tomorrow never dies you're not going to have the big fight scene with Jonathan Price but you will have it with Stamper you know so Carl is kind of the Stamper in this situation and their fight scene like Obviously, it ends with John strangling him with a chain and hanging him. Uh, but even this is one of those great ones where I'm talking about where John's punching him in the ear, which just seems like the dirtiest thing to do. And he's just grumbling all these things under his breath the entire thing. And like some of them are things like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cook you and I'm going to eat you. Like this is again, <laughs> make no real sense. But like that's such a John McClane thing. Like in all the movies, they always kept true to that character. Where he just he says these vicious, vile things to people, almost as a way to just get himself pumped up. Um, but like he's totally unmatched in this. It's only because he's a dirty fighter that he actually comes out on top. That when Holly uh, finally gets kidnapped by Hans, I love where she's like, you know, after all this, you're just a common thief, and he goes, "I'm an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean." <laughs> it reminds me so much of Goldeneye. Like at the end of the day, all this borders down as you being a bank robber. 
Well, even here, after he says I'm an exceptional thief, he's like, and since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be a little bit more polite. <laughs> uh, I thought the same thing when John's on the roof firing the gun off. It's like, yeah, take this guy out. Like, he's dangerous. Uh, when they all start coming down, the, the guy, uh, the Godzilla guy, who, as I said, was also Genghis Khan and Bill and Ted, he has this great expression, which I, I, if I had had time, I would have screen capped it for my profile pic. Uh, because when John basically comes down the stairs and opens the door, they only show it from the point of view of the door opening and this henchman acting surprised. And look on his face, it's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like something you would see in a cartoon. And then John just fires away at this guy and he just drops dead. It's just, it's so, I'm not going to say unintentionally funny, but it's like, I don't think they were going for a laugh. It just works well. Um, kind of a plot hole in this movie. They're on the 30th floor for this entire movie. They even mention the vault as being on the 30th floor. When John shoots the window out and drops the body, he's dropping it from about four or five floors. Because they actually show a wide shot of the building when he does the welcome to the party pal just before that. And you see it's only four or five floors up. That's supposed to be the same room that Takagi's killed in. So why, if the vault is on the 30th floor, if the party's on the 30th floor, if everything else in this movie is on the 30th floor or higher... Why, when they got to Kagi, did they take him down to the fifth floor to get the code for the vault that they have to go back into the 30th floor for? Because it adds dramatic tension when he falls off higher. <laughs> That's perfect explanation. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm on the show. Sometimes. Uh, I love that line where he goes, uh, I promise if uh, uh, I'm ever in this situation again, I'll never even think about going into a tall building again. <laughs> and then going along with what I was saying about the, the action hero, the little subtle things they do, which you would never see in an action movie, like him gripping the arm of the chair and afraid to fly. When he's jumping here, first of all, the way John McTiernan shoots this, where he just jumps over the edge and you don't see everything. Like, where is he going? It's amazing. But he actually screams kind of in the background. He says, please, God, don't let me die. Never <laughs> <laughs> hear Stallone or Schwarzenegger or Wesley Snipes or anybody nah, else say please that. Please don't let me die. <laughs> Could you ever imagine it? <laughs> please don't let me die. We <laughs> <laughs> just do every action hero saying that line. Um, one of the most exciting moments of this whole movie is now I am getting into blow by blow of the action scenes, but when he's jumped with a fire hose and he's come crashing into the building and the fire hose starts dragging him out again, this is just like that table shot earlier where John McTiernan's got like a POV shot of John mm. being dragged on the ground and the fire hose slowly going over the edge. You don't see it from any other angle until he just cuts it loose. It still gets me to this day. I'm always like on the edge of my seat in that moment. Uh, a quick fire through all of this. Uh, when they've basically blown up the building and John comes down like a few minutes later and the entire lobby of the 30th floor is on fire and then the sprinklers kick in. Another one of those like subtle funny moments in the movie. Yeah. Um, Argyle punching Theo in the ear. He's got a John McClane move there. He punches him <laughs> in the ear. I just love the ear punches this movie. <laughs> it's a foot uh, and ear fetish movie. Like everything's up. Yeah, exactly. It's an ear fetish. Uh, and then, like, the final showdown here, uh, just call back to Jingle All the Way last week. We don't see John. We just hear him yelling, Hans! It just reminded <laughs> me last week of Jamie! <laughs> 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 it's the slow yells. But it, it's kind of, like, it's a pretty powerful moment that really builds the suspense. It builds this massive encounter when you hear him yelling Hans, and then he sort of walks in slowly to silhouette, which also plays along with the whole Western theme they have in this movie mm. with John and Hans. Because he walks in the silhouette, and then you just – I love when they have the reveal. 
And Holly's just like, oh, God. <laughs> and he's like, oh, honey. <laughs> Had a bit of a bad day. <laughs> um, the moment where they're all laughing, and you actually hear that the music becomes Jingle Bells playing. It's like, jing, 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 as they slowly reveal <laughs> the duct tape on his back with the other gun. And then when he shoots him, and he actually, like, this is John McClane. This is why he drives his knife wife nuts. He shot the guy. The guy's fallen on the building. Holly's attached to him, and John takes the moment to pose, blow the smoke off the gun, and go, happy trails. <laughs> and she's like, John, you can't fall here. <laughs> oh, come on. We'd all be doing that at that moment. Just like, you know, cool like, action hero moment. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, that, because I think there's a lot of trivia with this movie that, uh, you know, as I said, has kind of been misstated over the years. Um, this moment is not at all misstated. Like, this was exactly what they did. They told Alan Rickman, who was like a stage actor. I mean, he wasn't like a movie guy and certainly never done an action movie. Even though he's not actually falling from a building, they did this on a soundstage. But it was something like a 40 or 50 foot drop that they had to have for this shot that they were shooting in slow-mo. And they told him, we will drop you on three. One, and then he told the guy, it's like, drop him on two. And he's like, one, two, and drops. And that's why you get that amazing expression. Without a guy like John McTiernan, would this image have been as iconic? And even just being able to play it in super slow mo, and then cutting to when the body falls, it's like regular speed. It just—it's so good. Um, the the bonds that are falling down, like this entire theft thing. I'm wondering why none of these people are grabbing it. Like <laughs> these are hundreds of millions of dollars floating around the street. Like people should be grabbing these things and pocketing it, but. This was that thing I said that was kind of a callback when they, when they changed it from the book of being terrorists to being people posing as terrorists. The ending of this was supposed to be uh, just on the book here. First of all, it wasn't his wife, the character. It was his daughter that he was visiting. And the other thing they changed was that the daughter was actually, I guess, in cahoots with the terrorists. And when this final confrontation came between the main character and Hans, or the, the Gruber character, uh, and he fell off the building, he dragged the daughter down with him. So the daughter dies in the book, but the scene plays the exact same way with the wife, only that he rescues her. Uh, the, the bonds being thrown out of the building, when it was in the book a terrorist plot, this was their plan. It wasn't, we want to rob you. It says, we want to rob you and your corporation, and literally throw the stuff out the window. That was their plot. We're going to like give the money back to the people. Uh, that's the type of terrorists they were. But they still kind of kept that in the ending with these bonds raining down or snowing down on the city, which is cool. Um, yeah, I love the, just the moment when him meeting Alan, these guys laughing and crying at the same time. Uh, uh, Holly punching Dick. Like It gets kind of like cliched 80s here where she punches him and did you get that to the cameraman, which is great. Uh, Carl living, like, something, again, you see in every 80s movie. This is such a James Bond thing. Like, you think the movie's over, and then the henchman is still left alive. Like, Rosa Klebb is still alive. <laughs> you know, Teehee is still alive. Jaws is still alive. And you get that one last showdown. Necross uh, is still alive. Necross is still alive, yeah. Uh, but here, you know, it being Carl, who's like, how was he alive when he was strangled? How long was he hanging there before the paramedics brought him down the building? It shouldn't be possible. <laughs> uh, and then Al shooting him. You know, great moment for Al there. And th- th- that's the most heroic moment in the movie, too. The, the way they play that, it's almost like a little bit corny. It's like, dun 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 <laughs> uh, and, and then the funniest thing here, we have 
sheriff or deputy chief Dwayne T. Robinson, it's going to be the full name, where he's like, you, you're going to have a lot of things to answer for. He kind of has a point. Even if it shouldn't be you know, the death of Ellis or whatever else, John should be going in for questions. They should be getting a statement from this guy. This is yeah. the only terrorist attack in the history of the city of Los Angeles, arguably the only real you know, international terrorist attack in the history of the United States at this point. And... They let the guy drive off in a limo with his wife. The only two witnesses to this entire crime. How do they know he's really a cop? And, like, what jurisdiction does he have in Los Angeles? He's an NYPD officer. For all we know. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, They should have very least been saying, listen, can we get your statement? Can we at least get your number? Like, they have no way to contact the guy. (laughs) The only person with their address is the reporter who just got punched on live television. And he's not giving Uh, it up because he doesn't want... Yeah. I do want to mention the Ode to Joy thing, which I don't think Ode to Joy is a Christmas Christmas thing, but this no. being played um, you know, throughout the movie, it, it was used in all the trailers too because uh, I watched – like I was such a huge fan that when I got the DVD uh, for Christmas, you know, however many years after I saw this, I watched like every – they have like 60 TV spots on there. And every single TV spot I watched had Ode to Joy playing. But again, this movie came out in July and it was promoted with this – beethoven piece and not with a christmas song um but that music has become so synonymous with die hard that even the later movies would use ode to joy in their trailers uh i i i think that good day to die hard did it they kind of did a cool remix of it i'm pretty sure live free did uh i don't know if two or three did but um when we got married when jamie and i got married uh i had been in a wedding a couple of years earlier, a wedding party, not my own wedding, <laughs> my first. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, in this wedding party, the couple that I was one of the groomsmen for, uh, I didn't even know they were going to do this. But the music that they walked back down the aisle to was the theme for Pirates of the Caribbean, which is one of my favorite <laughs> musics ever. And when that music kicked, like, I wish that somebody had a camera on face. It was almost like, huh? What? <laughs> because I got to walk down the aisle following them along with the other rest of the wedding party. To the theme from Pirates of the Caribbean, which I told Jamie, like, this is amazing. And she's like, I'm not going to let you do, like, a Star Wars theme or Superman or James Bond to walk down the aisle at our wedding. She picked all the music, the music that we came into, well, the music that the the groom party came into, the music that she walked down to, and the music we walked down to. And she picked Ode to Joy. She didn't even know. I'm like, I actually, like, slapped myself on the face like a Kevin McAllister thing. Like you said, I'm like, I get to walk out to my own wedding to John McClane's theme? And I got so excited, but like that—that's what I will always remember this music for. Now is John McClane's theme, and the only time I ever got to walk in or out of a room to this theme was my own wedding. So I share the same theme music with John McClane. Well, I win. Having known that that's a thing, I'm totally walking out of my wedding to Jurassic Park theme. Yes. Um, <laughs> Melody Do does not have a say in that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, this movie was a complete utter box office bomb. No one liked it. Um, why Franchise are we talking about? <laughs> kind of just spawned four sequels after this to varying degrees of success. Um, and I guess on its first release, it wasn't exactly loved when it was first released, though, was it? Like it was kind of mixed, nope. I believe. I mean, are you talking Sorry? critically or? Critically, uh, oh, at least. I Yeah, I don't know critically. I mean, I know that some people got it, some people didn't. But 
I think that's just that comes with it being you know a new form of action movie. We're talking about like the the beginning of the violent action movie genre. Well, according to Wikipedia, on release, Die Hard drew ambivalent reviews from critics. Uh, British film critic Mark Commode expressed admiration for the film, calling it an exciting setup of cowboys and Indians in the towering inferno. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a less than flattering review, rating it a mere two stars and criticizing the stupidity of the deputy police chief character, claiming that all by himself he successfully undermines the last half of the movie. Uh, but if you look at this right now on Rotten Tomatoes, 93% Oof. based on 71 reviews, 8.4 out of 10. Uh, its critical consensus reads, its many imitators and sequels have never come close to matching the taut thrills of the definitive holiday action classic. On Metacritic, the film has 70 out of 100 based on 13 critics, which indicates generally favourable reviews. Audiences polled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of A+, on the A+, to F scale. The I know I talk a lot about the Honest Trailers, but I this is one of the ones that I actually laugh the most at when they get there at the end and they're like, this spawns so many imitators, including Die Hard on a Bus, yeah. Die Hard on a Boat, Die Hard on Another Boat, Die Hard on a Plane. And die Hard in a Building. <laughs> yeah, and they call it Die you- Hard in a Building. Um... <laughs> I, I think this was on one of the special features for – I don't remember if it was Die Hard or something else, but there is a real story out there of the success of this spawn was Speed, Die Hard on a bus, Under Siege, Die Hard on a boat, you know, uh, Passenger 57, Die Hard on a plane, Air Force One, Die Hard on a plane. And that at one point it reached the point where some people would pitch movies like this. Like they would actually go and say, to a studio executive and say, listen, I got a movie for you, Die Hard on a submarine. And at one point, somebody walked into a room and says, we want to do a movie. It's like Die Hard in a building. And they were sort of like, yeah, <laughs> that's called Die Hard. <laughs> but was that not Skyscraper? Okay, listen, it's The Rock, right? It's Die Hard, right? Listen to me. It's, but it's The Rock. Okay, I'm, you, you get where I'm going with this. But he has one leg. Sold. He's Sold. Dollars. <laughs> Make the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which have you seen Skyscraper? I actually haven't seen it. Yeah, I wasn't happy with it. <laughs> okay then, general reaction for the Oz Network as well. Um, just a, another thing here too is that this has been listed on several greatest all-time Christmas movie lists. Yes. Uh, can I just po- point this out? Digital Spy has this as the fifth greatest Christmas movie of all time. Entertainment Weekly has it as the fourth greatest Christmas movie of all time. The Guardian at the eighth. The Hollywood Reporter as number four, and the San Francisco Gate, Forbes, Forbes, and Empire have this listed as the greatest Christmas movie of all time. So, <laughs> I'm just looking here at the Empire list to see if it can give me all of them. Um, it tells me number 30 is Brazil. Oh, what a movie. We love that. Um, so, according to Empire's list... Die Hard is number one. It's a Wonderful Life, number two. Gremlins, number three. Muppet Christmas Carol, number four. Trading Places, number five. That's a Christmas movie? Apparently. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas at number six. Scrooge at number seven. Batman Returns at number oh. eight. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang at number nine. And Bad Santa, ugh, overrated, uh, at number ten. Those are essentially um, all Christmas movies that the arguments get made that is not a Christmas movie. Yeah, true. Um, and this is something that I only just discovered today. This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. 
Uh, it was nominated for Best Sound Editing, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Sound. Sadly, didn't win any of them. In Best Sound, it lost to the iconic film Bird. Um, can't wait to cover that one. Uh, <laughs> and for all the other three, it actually lost to Who Framed Roger Rabbit in all three of the other uh, categories. So uh, I, I did not know this was nominated for Oscars. This is nominated for more Oscars than Jurassic Park. There you <laughs> go. Um, and box office wise, yeah, it did okay, I guess. <laughs> it uh, made where have I lost my screen in front of me? There it is. Uh, Eighty three million dollars. Uh, worldwide, it made another fifty seven million. So one hundred forty one million worldwide, which I guess in a in a way doesn't really sound like that much. But I mean, you know, three years ago age. and R rated, yeah. Yeah, it does. So it was the seventh highest grossing film of 1988. Uh, and to look at the films that beat it, Rain Man was the number one film that year. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, number two. Coming to America, followed by Big Twins, Crocodile Dundee 2. Um, and then Die Hard beat out The Naked Gun from the files of Police Squad. Uh, Cocktail and Beetlejuice at number 10. And if you were to compare the year. seventh, the seventh biggest film of 2017 was It which made $327 million. And so far at the time of recording this, the seventh biggest movie of 2018 is Mission Impossible Fallout, which wow. made $220 million. The weekend, you know, it was kind of, it was, li- it was released in a limited weekend and, uh, I guess, would you say major weekend? How do you, how do you describe those? What would you say? Limited um, and wide release. Wide release. Thank you. That's the big words I'm looking for. So, uh, it's first weekend and limited release. Uh, where it was only released on 21 screens, it made $28,000. No, sorry, $601,000. I'm looking at the different ones. That was the average. Um, so on the same weekend, uh, A Fish Called Wanda was released. A Killing Affair was released. Bambi reissue was released. And the Deadpool, uh, that's the Deadpool, not Deadpool. I think the final <laughs> Dirty Airy movie. Yeah. And the, on its wide release, it came in at Third, uh, behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Coming to America. So it made $7 million on a wide release. So, I mean, like, that's decent numbers, isn't it? I mean, it's weird that they staggered it, though. Why would they do limited, then, wide release that's, of a film like this? Yeah, that's like something you do for Oscar bait movies, you know? Like, hmm. if you will find, like, you're pretty rare that you'll find a big-budget movie like this do a limited release, period, unless it is to build... I think Disney will do that strategy sometimes, but I've never really seen a blockbuster, an action movie, not go for a full wide release. Like, what would be the point? I mean, Which, obviously it worked because the the word of mouth is movie, like you said, seven million dollars on its wide release opening weekend. But the thing makes like you know almost ninety million dollars in the long run. Obviously, the word of mouth is where this movie built its audience. And we don't necessarily often. I mean, we do sometimes, but I guess you mentioned before this wasn't released at Christmas. It was released in July. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. In terms of the franchise itself, given that we're not going to go through the other ones, at least for some time, uh, it's the fourth highest uh, box office for any of the Die Hard movies. All the Die Hard sequels that followed uh, improved on this one, except for A Good Day to Die Hard, which made $67 yeah. million. Uh, but the highest grossing Die Hard film for those playing at home is Live Free or Die Hard, a.k.a. Die Hard 4.0. Uh, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, they call it Die Harder here on uh, Box Office Mojo, is second, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, third. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if you really have much to add on any of the box offices at all. No, I just quickly we just wanted to comment. If, if we, I'm sure we'll get around to it someday, but 
I, I think Die Hard 2, even though it's not my favorite, I, I would probably rank it as my second least favorite in the series. To say it's my second least favorite is still to say it's one of my favorites because uh, I will watch Die Hard and I'll always try to watch Die Hard 2 for Christmas. And I think Die Hard 2 kind of went through this period where people said that was a bad sequel. And I've noticed specifically in the last couple of years, so many people, a lot of people actually saying that they think Die Hard 2 is even better than Die Hard. Now, I've always I love- loved Die Hard 2. Always Die like Hard it. 2, is, it's a fantastic movie, and I think the only thing this movie is missing, like the, the environment of snow, they really get with the second Die Hard. Die Hard The Vengeance, for a movie that took the exact opposite direction of a guy stuck in a building or whatever on his own, now he's out in the real world, he's got people helping him. There's no reason that movie should have worked as a Die Hard movie, but I mean, I absolutely adore that movie. Um, and the additional Samuel Jackson's amazing. They got John McTiernan back for that one. It's such a clever, creative movie. Uh, and then Live Free or Die Hard, there's a lot of criticism for that just because it got a PG-13 rating, which really came down to the fact that they cut a couple of shots because the R-rated version is like 16 seconds longer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's basically all there is to it. But like, I, I, I still say Live Free or Die Hard is probably my favorite of the Die Hard sequels. And then A Good wow. Day to Die Hard can just die hard. <laughs> um, just, uh, I don't know if you got your keywords open, but just quickly on the uh, parents' guide... I mean, obviously, this one's got a lot for the parents' guide because yeah. there's a lot going on here. But the one that I like the most here is uh, profanity. Somebody's gone through and actually counted the swear words. So there How is one use, of, <laughs> well, one use of the word Christ, 13 uses of goddamn, 14 use of ass, 14 use of asshole, two uses of shithead, three uses of bullshit, 31 uses of shit, and 56 uses of fuck, as well as two uses of dickhead. So... <laughs> um, Yep. There's no cocaine count on there? No, apparently not. Uh, alcohol, drugs, and smoking. Cocaine is briefly snorted twice. Several cactus smoke cigarettes. People drink alcohol at a party, and there are one or two who are clearly drunk, including the pregnant woman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> violence and gore. More than a dozen people are shot, often accompanied by brief instances of bloody bullet wounds and squibs. Not detailed or graphics. McLean is forced to walk on shards of glass barefoot to escape after the terrorists shoot glass windows in the process of a gunfight. Um, yeah. So, these are funny, these, uh, parent cut. Anyway, uh, do you have your plot keywords open? I'm on my phone, and for whatever reason, the mobile site is not easy to find on here. Do you have it open? Alright, I have. One against many months. We could do that. Um, that would be a good one. Number one on one against many months, of course, is Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> they must just go based on like what's hot at the moment. Venom number two, Mortal Engines three, Robin Hood four, and The Predator number five. Uh, we have Pig. Is there a pig in this movie, or are they just calling That's it derogatory pig? towards the cops? <laughs> it's literally Pig. Most popular <laughs> pig titles. Guinea Deadpool two. Guinea <laughs> Pig. Not quite. The Equalizer two, Die Hard two, Raider, and Christopher Robin. Somebody's written prego instead of pregnant. <laughs> prego month. So it's not even pregnant lady. It's prego. <laughs> Sounds like an Australian wrote this one. A Quiet Place, Die Hard, Blade Runner 2049, Game Night, and Tully. Uh, somebody's put on here bacon. <laughs> they do like police references here. <laughs> um, we have, uh, what's Asiatic? Is that like, meant to be like Asian based? Sure. Asiatic. Asiatic, number one, Die Hard. 
Number two, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Three, Oh Lucy. Four, Steel Dawn. Five, Dersu Zala. Um, okay. Oh, two-way radio month. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Stuffed toy. Uh, tarmac. Black man. Japanese man. Oh, here we go. Beard. Beard yeah. month. Oh, where's home improvement? Where's home improvement? <laughs> Uh, well, there's Beard or Bearded Man, whichever one you like. So, Beard, we have Aquaman, Venom, Mortal Engines, Robin Hood, and the Predator. Didn't we just go through the same <laughs> list like five just, ago? Just, just, just control F and look for home improvement on there. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a long list. Um, there's, un- oh, here we go. Underground Parking Month. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's going to be a big one. Die Hard's number one, followed by The Bouncer, followed by an episode of The Felony Squad called A Fashion for Dying, followed by Thunderbirds, episode called City of Fire, and Beware of the Batman, episode <laughs> four. Uh, sorry. Oh, Kiss on the Cheek month, Under Construction month, we could have Talking on a Rooftop month, Bare Breasts month, there's a, there's a good one. I know you're keeping Impl- them Implied sex months. Uh, <laughs> this list is huge. This is the longest one I've ever seen. I'm not going through all of this. Uh, there's 310 plot keywords. How many are on just that one? On on just that one? On what was that one? The, the um, what were you looking at? Breasted women or something? <laughs> oh, God. There's lots of breasts. Uh, bare breasts, all right? Uh, on bare breasts, there is... Uh, 5,756. <laughs> so, the top five are Widows, uh, followed by uh, Star is Born, followed by The Favourite, followed by Halloween, followed by Under the Silver Lake. <laughs> and <laughs> just some of these things. Knocked Up, Computer, Tattooed Trash, Safe Cracking, Touch Screen, Reference to Ebenezer Scrooge Month. Uh- <laughs> Videotaped College Football Games Month. <laughs> <laughs> Reluctant Hero. Police Brutality. Chainsaw. Blood Splatter. Marital Problem Month. <laughs> you know what? You know what's sick? I'm up to now 150 titles on Bearded Man, and I have yet to find home improvements. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, oh, Soliloquy Month. Faked accent. <laughs> okay, we're having too much fun with this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I guess we are both going to bin this movie then. Um, yeah. It's trash. Yeah, it's shit. <laughs> I think we are both buying this movie, Colin Hilding. Um, I'm not I- buying it. I am being gifted it for the third time in my life, I'm hoping. Oh, right. Okay. Who's gifting it to you this year? Anybody. Uh, you. Al Borland. Al Borland. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, this is clearly a, a buy. So we've had a good year this year when it comes to doing movies that we love, haven't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we yeah. even tried to mix it up by doing a bad movie month, and we somehow bought the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, we're kind of like, we've got too many buys on this show. We need to start bidding some shit. Um, anyway... But that really, not only does it conclude our Christmas month slash six weeks, it 
kind of concludes our movies for 2018, at least full recaps, and at least for a couple of months too, because uh, before we kind of look ahead to next year, we should say, we'll, I mean, we'll be doing, uh, I guess, Aquaman still to come, so uh, we'll be doing a review of Aquaman. Uh, is there anything else? Are you doing Creed 2 or...? Uh, I'm still hoping to. Um, I might do a review with my brother who saw it with me, but Noah is living in Korea and is very disappointed that um, apparently Creed 2 doesn't get released in Korea. <laughs> oh. uh, so if it comes out there, we might get around to it. But I, I'll be seeing a couple of movies coming up. Uh, I'm taking my nieces to see Mary Poppins 2. Oh. So maybe Jamie will do that. Maybe I'll get my nieces to record with me. Who knows? And then one of my nephews, who of course has been on a couple episodes, including the Infinity War one with us, really wants to go see Bumblebee. And I'm going to go with Bumblebee with him soon. So I'll have some reviews. But also, um, at the time you're listening to this, uh, I will have our final Christmas random TV rewatch, which we do at the beginning of the week. Uh, Rossi and I are covering a RuPaul Christmas special that oh. just aired a couple of weeks ago um so stay tuned for that one but then yeah i guess after that it's a bit of a break for january and then uh we're gonna get really busy after that with oscar stuff and all of our months that we have planned for february and on i think the only other one that i probably would be adding to that that i will see is i want to see vox lux and i know you'll be going out Ugh. to our russian see natalie portman movie so um i will see that luck. just so i can argue with you on how bad natalie portman is what if you see it and you think he's brilliant colin what are you going to do then like, you know, come on. It's yet um, to happen in 20 years of her career, so why is it going to happen now? So, yeah, next year is going to be interesting because I guess we're going to be here yeah, having a bit of a break, but it's well, we're not really having a break. Colin and I are going to be recording. We're just, you're not going to be hearing them for a while. Um, Colin uh, is with child. Well, he's not. His wife, lovely wife, Jamie, is. So, uh, the second half that? of the year is... <laughs> you what? You want to pluralize that? Uh, twi- babies, childs. <laughs> with children. That's- children so there's going to be uh, a large portion of next year where colin might be a little bit busy so <laughs> um, three kids running around the house is going to be fun well not running i don't know if they run when they're born i don't know i've never had a kid but at least we're going to be banking a lot of these episodes because we've got some big ones to come next year but oscars are probably going to be the main ones that we'll get to next which at the same time we don't really do recaps of those as such they're kind of just reviews like we did uh, earlier this year. But our first real month that we're going to have, we're going to bring Bad Movies Month forward to March, um, which March will be interesting. Well, I think we said March, didn't we? Oh, I don't know. We'll see. We can always do it earlier, I guess. We'll see. Uh, do we want to go through what we're doing now, or do we want to keep that as a surprise? Well, do you have the schedule in front of you? I do. I'm looking let's, at it right now. Yeah, let's let's not reveal the movies for all these months, but let's reveal what our months are going to be, other than okay. the ones which are very clear well there'll be two where you'll know but yeah so we're, we're doing yep. bad movies month in uh march then anniversary month will be brought forward to april um we've got some good ones there in that but then essentially from there we're going to be doing um bio month uh biopic month uh, essentially in the lead up to um rocket man, uh, rocket man. thank you so uh we were planning on doing that this year for Bohemian Rhapsody, but we thought we'll probably push that forward for that. And let's be honest, Bohemian Rhapsody is going to be one of those movies that we're doing in yep. the lead up to Rocketman. Uh, and then the other one we're doing sort of was your idea with live action Disney month in the lead up to... Well, there's three live action Disney movies next year, but we're only going to focus on the lead up to Lion King because that's the only one I give a shit about. Oh, I'll probably see Aladdin. Um, so where we're going to do three live action Disney movies. We're still going to do the original Lion King just because I feel like we need to put that in there. Um, and you kind of have chosen, I've, I've never seen any of these live action Disney movies because I just don't oh. see the point. 
I don't see the point either, but I have a wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, whatever. But the big two ones next year, which are basically going to be coming at the same time, we're going to have Terminator 5 week. Uh, in the lead up to Terminator 6. But the big one, the one that you and I, let's be honest, we only care about this one. We could not do any of the other ones. We don't care. One of the things that when we first started doing this outside of doing Survivor stuff is that we always talked about was these films to do and we need six months to be able to do ten films because we're going to have to talk about them so long. We are finally going to be doing Star Wars, ladies and gentlemen. So excited. We held off last year in doing them. We That's why we did the Clone Wars, the Ewoks, and the holiday special because we thought we'd save doing all the proper recaps until Episode Nine comes out. So we, next year, will be going through all of the eight-episode films as well as doing Solo and Rogue One. Colin, how excited are we for this? excited and afraid at the same time <laughs> because <laughs> we do another podcast double r seven we did a great interview with robert davi which you'll hear in a few minutes a snippet from <laughs> but um we did the same kind of project before specter where me you and noah said we're gonna watch all the james bond movies and i think we started with like some two two and a half hour long episodes and by the end we got to like some of the bigger james bond movies we were doing three and a half four hours and I think every time we've had a big podcast that's taken us a long time, we always say, oh, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we do Star Wars? Like, we're going to have to split the – we don't know – we honestly don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to talk so much about these that, as you said, it's going to be a six-month thing instead of just ten weeks? Like, we have no idea. It, it, we have so much to talk about with these. We have so many different opinions, uh, so many popular opinions, unpopular opinions, but that's, I think, more, even, I'm not going to say more so, but along with the reasoning of there's going to be a, a couple of weeks or maybe a month or so where I'm going to be unavailable because of the twins coming, um, we also know that Star Wars could take quite a while. So we're going to get the jump as soon as possible, and uh, by the time you listen to us in December, we should be wrapping up our 12 months of recording on it. Yes. Uh, we've always said that we'll probably have to release these in parts. But, yeah, we don't know. Like, we, I mean, we were able to do it with Santa with muscles. Yeah. We were kind of like, right, hour limit. Like, we should maybe try and see if it's like, okay, cap it to three hours. And if we get to, like, yeah. two hours into episode one and we're just at the landing in Naboo, then we're like, right, cap each part at three hours or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but because, you know, it's going to be so interesting how we do it. And particularly with the first three episodes because we're going to be defending the prequels a lot more than maybe other podcasts ever have i don't know there's so many star wars podcasts out there i've not listened to any of them so um i'm sure surely one exists out there where they've defended the prequels right maybe oh i'm sure there are (laughs) so that's getting everyone excited that we're gonna get straight into it like we like jar jar binks uh, we don't mind them. I don't know if we like, but we don't mind them. Oh, shut up. Uh, <laughs> I I always change my opinion on Jar Jar every single time I watch it. Oh, God. What are we doing? <laughs> People want to listen to these. But uh, I think Bad Movie will be the fun one to start off with because yeah. looking at Bad Movie Month, I can tell you one of them I probably will buy because I actually do really like one of the movies. It's considered <laughs> one of the worst movies of all time. But I think the other ones, I don't think I've ever seen any of the other three. So I can't really comment right now on them. So, yeah. Should we, should we at least tease on those ones because that's going to be our next one? Yeah, let's do that. Well, I mean, you may be waiting two or three months to hear it, but we'll give you... What bad movie month's going to be? 
So uh, the one that I definitely will say I really enjoy is Adventures of Pluto Nash, uh, Eddie Murphy <laughs> bomb from 2002. I actually, at the time of recording this, I watched the other day I Spy, the Eddie Murphy and uh, Owen Wilson oh, movie, yeah. which I actually don't mind that movie. It was a bad year, 2002, for Eddie Murphy. He had Pluto Nash, Showtime, and I Spy, all of which bombed. Um, and I, I've never seen Showtime, but I like two of them. I'm a big Eddie Murphy fan, so, you know... Um, but yeah, you've never seen Pluto Nash. It's just, it's like, it is a movie that you can see why people universally hate it. It's a stupid movie, but like Eddie Murphy just owns it enough that I think it's enjoyable. And like Randy Quaid's in it and John Cleese is in it. And it's just, I don't know. It, it to me, it's in the so stupid, it's good category. Um, Cat in the Hat, which I've never seen. I don't know why. Nope. Cause I grew up on the Cat in the Hat books and I like Mike Myers. Um, what else are we doing? Uh, the Emoji <laughs> Movie, which we avoided yes. doing last year. We're finally doing it, people! <laughs> <laughs> and Book of Henry, the movie which, um, oh. avoided Colin, Colin Trevevero from doing Star Wars. Um, yeah. have you seen any which of these movies? I've, I've only seen the Book of Henry, and it's funny because I watched that, um, it was on TV, around the time we were recording the the bad movie month this past year in august and it was probably like in the last week and as soon as i saw it i i the first thing i thought of was like we have to do this we do a bad movie month next year um the only way i could describe it is it's a slightly better version of uh, another movie we covered but if somebody were to have done one of those 90s style kids movies uh, like, what was the one with the kids who find Mel Gibson waking up out of cryo-freeze 50 years later or something? Forever oh, Young? Uh, yeah. or like The Sandlot, or like these movies, these kind of like respectable dramas involving kids. If somebody did a movie like that, in the style of The Room, <laughs> where it's just so many things happen in that movie, you're like, what were they thinking? And you can, uh, you start watching the movie and you're like, this is just a normal movie. And then it just takes these weird directions and by the end of it, you're like, thank God Colin Trevor was fired from Star Wars Episode Nine. What would we have been in for? Well, it can't be worth in Return of the It's going to blow your mind. Some of the... Well, it's got Naomi some Watts of the in it. Poor Naomi Watts. She always gets in the shit oh. movies. <laughs> and, and this one, I she deserves... <laughs> she deserves... Oh, no, I can't say she deserves <laughs> to die, but <laughs> or die hard. <laughs> her career deserves to. Basically, her career. I mean, I, I'm a Naomi Watts fan, but this should have killed her career as well. Like it is, uh, no person in their right mind would ever sign on to a movie like this. It is that bizarre. <laughs> I like Naomi Watts too. I yeah, uh-huh. she has a bit of a bad run of stuff which maybe i'll change my mind after she's in this i don't know um so yes that is our bad movie month uh in a couple of months but in the meantime it's been a fun year we've got our best of episode which we'll be having as well uh before the end of the year so uh stay tuned for that and uh, our regular uh third watch and nip tuck episodes will come your way alongside uh what colin's mentioning of course and lost will be returning in the new year uh, we've at least recorded two of them. Um, for some reason, we can't seem to record more than two. Blame Noah. He's in Korea. And um, hopefully we'll get them spread out to you over the next 500 years when we finish our Star Wars episodes. Uh, but this has been fun. Christmas six weeks. It's done and dusted. Die hard. It's great. We've bought it. And we appreciate you all tuning into all of these. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on the regular channels. And we will be back with more recaps for you. Full recaps in 2019. 
My Robert name Dobby. is... And oh, well, hang on. Yes, that's true. Robert Darby. Thank you, Colin. I listen to you when you say we should do things. You're about to hear a snippet of our Robert Darby interview that we did via Double Seven. Download now via iTunes and relevant podcast channels. Uh, talking about his role in Die Hard. But before you hear that, I'm going to say my name is Ben and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cook you and I'm going to eat you. And my name is Colin, and eat it, Ben! You know, outside of even License to Kill, you know, you mentioned earlier how you'd done the Goonies and everything, and I mean, as you've detailed, like, the complexity of the villain, you really had this great string in the 80s of playing, you know, these iconic villains, even though some of them probably shouldn't have been villains. I mean, the three main ones, at least for me growing up in my childhood, I mean, I can't go through this without asking about the Goonies and Die Hard. I mean, and... Of those three movies, you know, you obviously had the biggest, most complex role in License to Kill, but I mean, the fan bases for Goonies and Die Hard are out there as well. Which one of these do you usually get the most recognition for? That depends. That 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 always depends. I think because there's no sequels, that there's a. Uh, it's it's always and and I'll, and I'll tell you what 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 uh, Josh Brolin said on uh, the the um, Jimmy Fallon show one night. Jimmy Fallon's a huge Goonie fan. Mm-hmm. And he had Josh Brolin on with a bandana. He, Jimmy Fallon wore a red bandana, Jimmy Fallon. And then he presented one to Josh. Now, Josh Brolin's done a lot of other films, as I have, you know, and he's done bigger films, you know, uh, some, some interesting things, you know. But yet, when Josh was asked, what film do people most go to you on? It's Goonies. Mm-hmm. And um, now... It depends on where you are in the world. See, the interesting thing is if I go to certain parts of South America or, or, uh, or Jamaica or the Bahamas or different areas, like even uh, Bangladesh, let's say, or India, you know what I mean? There's a huge bond contingency around the world or Norway or Estonia. Uh, then other areas have a huge Goonie contingency or a diehard, or, you know what I mean? And then there's showgirl. But, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, it, it, it depends. It depends. It's a, uh, there's a, there's a drawing pool from a lot of different things. And how did you find, you know, going through those three movies, which really were just over the course of a few years and playing those different villains? Like, did you carry experiences from one to the other? Well, they were all different, weren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. look at this. I mean, you in, technically in, should in have been a good guy in Die Hard. I mean, you were the <laughs> FBI. <laughs> right, but, you know, that was at a time, you got to realize the psychology behind that film at that time. Bruce Willis had one more shot to be a movie star. His other two films had failed. His other films had failed at the box office. And Bruce Willis, because of his uh, character in Moonlighting, had a smirky kind of presence. Great presence, but smirky. Right? Mm. So, in Die Hard, they had to make him likable. When I first, I, I saw Die Hard with Arnold for the first time at 20th Century Fox. And when I come on the screen, who's in charge? Not anymore. Arnold gets mm-hmm. up in his, his chair and he goes, this is fantastic. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna the stage. This is fantastic. And then as, as, the, as the film went on and the character became more of a... You know, it, it dissipated. He looks over at me and goes, you idiot, what do you do here? How come you turned into this idiot now? I thought you were going to save the day here and you're, and you're this fumbling FBI guy. What the hell is going on with you here? He was upset because, <laughs> all right, and I had a raw deal with Arnold back in the day. So here you have, you know, uh, uh, they had to make the FBI guys stupid 
of course, because they, they couldn't come in to save the day because it, it made Bruce Willis, you know, I mean, and, and, and look at him walking around naked. And it and, and, uh, was brilliant, a brilliant uh, project to put him in. And initially, you know who was supposed to do that character who got the book first, the right? Sinatra. Yes. As Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. They went to Sinatra first for Dirty Harry. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.